Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel, lead writer for the LexRex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the LexRex Institute, and also a lawyer dog. Well, I just mean a lawyer, actually, but <laughs> I'm not speaking in the capacity of either a lawyer or a lawyer dog today. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the LexRex Institute. The LexRex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, LexRex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. All right, so what do we got today? You already sort of spoiled our first segment, but those of you who listened to our first episode will remember the saga of the lawyer dog, which was uh, first featured in our legal hot take segment. De- and Deemed not to be a valid invocation of rights under Miranda, which right. you know, your, your right to a lawyer, you got to clearly um, ask for a lawyer in a way that is... Unambiguous. Yeah, and unambiguous. And, and ultimately... <laughs> Some Ultimately, felt that that was an ambiguous way of requesting counsel. Yeah, a Louisiana court ruled that the suspect in that case who was being interrogated by police had not properly invoked his right to counsel when he said something about wanting a lawyer dog. Now, they chose to read that without a comma, as though he were asking for a dog who is a lawyer, rather than with a comma, as though he were calling the policeman dog, like buddy, pal, and asking for a, lo- a lawyer. Well. Yeah. We thought that was a pretty straightforward instance of misinterpretation, but That's how one, of our listeners, one of our listeners, <laughs> however, directed us to an article in the Washington Post where someone said, basically, not so fast, maybe not so clear. And in the interest of fairness, we want to give the full context for both when the rights to counsel attach, uh, what a valid invocation to counsel looks like, and then... Also, you know, what was actually said in this case. So uh, take it away, David. Yeah. So this is an article by Oren Kerr. And that's an ironic name. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. Not, I don't not, think it's spelled the same way, though. No, not not C-U-R. Wait, is it C-U-R <laughs> or C-U-R? I think it's just C-U-R, not, not I think two it's two R's. R's, isn't it? I don't. Eh, Maybe. Hold on. I, I don't let me, let me look I can't this spell. Up. Let me look this up. This is going to bother me. Yeah, just one R when you're talking about uh, like a mongrel. Anyway, vocabulary word for the day, cur, C-U-R means a dog, especially like a mangy dog. (laughs) Anyway. So this guy, this guy, you know, this guy's an expert on on dogs versus lawyers. Yeah, dog related legal issues. Anyway, he said basically that if what the opinion of the court meant was that the use of the term dog in and of itself made it unambiguous, that he agreed that would be ridiculous. But he argued that in fuller context, what they may have meant is that the invocation was ambiguous. That is to say the, right. the suspect so just, didn't clearly ask for a lawyer. Just to be clear, in order, you know, there, there's case law, I, I think it's from Davis v. U.S., I think is controlling law on this, that says that an invocation to the right of counsel must be an unambiguous declaration that one, you know, that somebody's asking for a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And in that case, uh, I think that, you know, basically what the person had asked in that case was something to the effect of, maybe I should talk to a lawyer. Do you think I should talk to a lawyer? Like a question to the police officers. And by way of analogy, 
The court in this Louisiana case said that uh, the defendant in that case's invocation of counsel was similar or ought to be treated similar. So, David, why don't you go ahead and do you have the exact quote of what the person asked for when asking for a lawyer? Uh, at least I have what the Washington Post printed. So, <laughs> and okay. We'll assume they're not going to outright lie about that stuff. Right. What they printed technically is not accurate to the transcript because they removed the word dog. So to, to take that issue out of it, they removed the word dog from it. So I'll read it the way I think the suspect then actually said it, which is as follows. If y'all, this is how I feel. If y'all think I did it, I know that I didn't do it. So why don't you just give me a lawyer dog? Cause this is not what's up. See, I would see that as very, very different from the language the defendant used in the Davis case. I'm inclined the to The defendant agree. in Davis was asking a question. Mm-hmm. He was asking to the police officers, do you think it's a good idea if I have a lawyer? And then essentially putting the ball in their court to decide whether or not they were going to do that. Here, I mean, because of what the guy is saying, I, I can see why people would say it's similar. But here it's not a question. He's saying, if y'all think I did it, I want a lawyer. In other words, if, if this condition is met, I would like a lawyer. What I think this invocation of right to counsel does I, I think that it obviously it demonstrates some degree of ignorance about how custodial interrogations work. Um, you know, you don't have to think that somebody's guilty in order for Miranda rights to attach. But w- what I read this as, you know, if you're going to be accusing me, if I'm a suspect in this crime, if I'm the sort of person who's subject to right to counsel, then I want counsel. Yeah. He may not have understood his Miranda rights. He may not un- have understood that he was being interrogated. I don't know which aspect he didn't understand. He's not a lawyer. He doesn't have to understand that stuff. He just has to make a clear invocation of right to counsel to the police. And then at that point, right to counsel attaches. Yeah, I think, you know, to be, I guess, maximally charitable to Orrin Kerr here. And, you know, he he says it's an ambiguous case in his mind. He doesn't say definitively, no, he wasn't. I think it's very clear. I agree. Very clear. But, and, you know, to be... Give his reading of it the, you know, best. And and the reason I think it's clear, just the reason I think it's clear is because everything else aside, the defendant is not in the position to know if the condition that he set up in his request has been met. Yeah. Only the police are in that position. And a, a statement is judged to be ambiguous or definite based on what the police officers know, since they're the ones who would be violating that person's constitutional rights by denying them right to counsel. Yeah. And, and if they know that they're going to, you know, that he's in a custodial interrogation, they know the condition is met. Mm-hmm. So it is unambiguous from their perspective. Yep, I, th- I think that makes sense. What Orrin Kerr seems to be getting tripped up by, as I see it anyway, and as, as you seem to see it, is that it is syntactically a question, but I think it's very definitely... It's not. It's, no, no, no. It, he, it is he, not an interrogatory. He ends with saying, why don't you just give me a lawyer? So that... You know, that is... Well, that, that's not in what you read. Yeah, it is. He said, I don't know. I know that I didn't do it, so why don't you just give me a lawyer because this is not what's up. Yeah, why don't you just give me a lawyer? Now, so that is technically could be read as a question. I think it's very definitely a rhetorical question meant to function as a statement, which is give me a lawyer. And I think it, it takes a little bit of... There's actually, there's actually a lot of clauses in that sentence. Yeah, it's, it's, I think he was... I, I think it's, it, the sentence contains something that on its own could be a question, but the sentence with all of its clauses ends in a period. Well, as they've chosen to represent it. They could have chosen otherwise, but I think... This, this, these are the undisputed clause. facts as reviewed by the appellate court in Louisiana. 
So whether or not this is what the guy intended to say on his transcript, I don't think the facts were disputed here. Only the legal point of whether or not this was an invocation of right to counsel was disputed. That's so fair enough. the record yeah. as presented to them ends with a period. Yeah. And I'm guessing if you could hear his tone of voice, you would agree that that's almost certainly the way he said this. As You know, because if you said, why don't you just give me a lawyer? Because this is not what's up. That would be one thing, but I'm guessing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm guessing that's not how he said it, and I'm no. I'm guessing I, that doesn't that seem likely. The transcriptionist heard the you know the the tonality and concluded, I think, rightly probably, that it wasn't. I, I, I really life. think that the sticking point for the court, and I think both for uh, Mr. Kerb, is the if y'all think I did it. Right. I think the right. fact that it's a conditional request for an attorney, I, I think, is what's making people say that this is not an unambiguous assertion of the right to counsel. Yeah. But like I said, that ambiguity exists solely in whether or not that condition is met. Yeah. Which the police know that it is. Right. Yeah, because otherwise he wouldn't have ended up being charged here, presumably. <laughs> right. The problem with a lot of the stuff like this is, so a case will get to the Supreme Court, a new standard will be, uh, be passed down for you know, what police are allowed to do when interrogating somebody. Then the next thing that happens is a bunch of lawyers read that case and they develop programs to train local police departments to comply yep. with whatever the new standard is. And the standard in this case that they would teach to police uh, as derived from the Davis case is going to be, it has to be an unambiguous statement. If somebody doesn't request counsel that's too, double negative. Clearly. But if somebody requests counsel <laughs> ambiguously, yeah. then you say that you know, it's not sufficient and you keep interrogating that person. So the police, rather than looking for, do I understand this person to be asking for a lawyer, are instead saying, do I understand this person to unambiguously be asking for a lawyer? Right. But the whole reason that ambiguity standard is in place in the first place is because in the Davis case, the court reasoned that the police may not have known that he was asking for a lawyer. The fact that something may be technically, logically ambiguous doesn't mean that it's actually ambiguous at all to an observer. Yeah, that's a good point. It's so it's a problem of, of the way that we train police on this stuff. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot about the way boots on the ground police officers proceed that I know drives lawyers insane, and I think this is just <laughs> don't get me started. Yeah, this no, is I, just... you know I, I support my I support my local police, support local police across the country one hundred percent. They are su such a necessary part of the way that we currently run government, but a lot of police procedure, I think, could stand to be improved. Yeah, there's lots of instances where they inadvertently make things inadmissible because, you know, and it, it comes down to a gap in understanding or training or both, basically. It can cause a lot of problems procedurally, but I think this may have been one of them. But in the end, the courts sided with the police on this one, so. Yeah, well, a, a big part of it is we've, we've, like you mentioned last week, David, we've sort of, not de, not de jure, but sort of de facto charged police with being the right people to investigate crimes now. Yeah. And they're just not really set up to do that. And when they start doing that, I think you tend to get a lot of abuses. And that's not the fault of the individual officers at all. That's a fault of the fact the system is asking people in a law enforcement capacity to do something that's really outside the purview of their job. Yeah. Anyway, so that's our revisit of the lawyer dog. I think we still basically land where we did originally. But thanks yeah. to actually, I, I would say even who, more strongly now. Yeah, <laughs> I forget who it was who sent this to us, but thank you to the listener. The person who that did. sent it was a lawyer, though. So reasonable, mind, reasonable minds can differ on this. Yeah. All right. With that out of the way, 
we're going to get into some news or actually this week, maybe more accurate headline review because we do have something we're going to talk about that isn't technically news. But first off, you wanted to bring up something. I haven't really been briefed on this, but a new development in the whole January 6th committee saga storyline. Yeah, specifically the Eastman litigation over the, yeah. the records that over which we are claiming privilege that Congress wants us to give them anyway. We, as I mentioned last week, we had just filed our brief. We received Congress's opposition brief this Thursday. They, of course, object to our invocation of the work product privilege, and they really didn't like the section where we claimed that uh, work product privilege could be invoked for legislative. So, so I guess what you got to know about work product privilege is it applies when in anticipation of litigation. And they said that this representation of Donald Trump was not a matter that was going to be litigated. It was something that was in front of Congress, You know, the, the vote count on January 6th specifically. Our argument was that because states can decide whether or not to decertify electors, I'm sorry, because Congress can decide whether or not to decertify electors from states, that that involved questions of fact. That's a case or controversy. Therefore, it's litigation. They basically said, no, it's not litigation because we think that what you were trying to do there wasn't good. And people only do good things in litigation, I guess, was sort of the implied argument there. Not terribly strong, but uh, that <laughs> that's the way they've responded. So that's still an ongoing matter. Well, I'll have to take your word for that characterization of it because I haven't read anything about <laughs> might, this. Really. might be a little bit uncharitable, but... <laughs> Yeah, but it, it amounts to basically that they said that you know, right. an attempt to corrupt a proceeding is not is not litigation. All right, but mm-hmm. obviously Eastman does not think he was trying to corrupt that proceeding, yeah, whether or that, not you do. That's what we call begging the question. Another another new word for the day: question begging. Yeah, and all right, when, you're, I, when your premise gonna, is the same thing as your conclusion. Yeah, I'm going to take a few <laughs> seconds on this one just because this is one of my pet peeves, and I think it's sort of a losing battle. I think it's already too far gone in common usage, but. I see a lot of people say beg the question when what they mean is raise the question. Or and so anyone who's listening, or... yeah, anyone who's listening to this, if what you mean is the information you had just presented introduces a new question or prompts a new question in your mind, that is raising a question, not begging a question. Begging a question means assuming in an argument that your conclusion is correct from the beginning and then presenting that as evidence that your conclusion is correct. Can you think of an example of, of begging, of question begging? So all the ones coming to mind to me are all legal ones that are probably too esoteric. Yeah, those are those are probably the most obvious ones. But in its bluntest form, and obviously no one would actually say it this way, but this should just like sort of so, so sort of show what it is. Excuse me. Wow, tongue twister. If you were in an argument about which is the best superhero, and someone said, "Well, it's obviously Superman," and you said, "Why?" and they said, "Well, if Superman weren't the best superhero, how could he be the best superhero?" That is sort of at its most naked question yeah. making. You've, or or, or you've say, it, say it's an argument Superman's between is best. Superman the best superhero or is Batman the best superhero? And then the person arguing for Superman says, well, Superman has more powers, therefore Superman's a better superhero. That basically yeah. is the difference between Batman and Superman. That's the point in contest. Yeah, that, that's fair. Yeah, and that's probably a little more realistic. Very few people would just like directly beg the question the way I just Right. Did, but, like if, yeah. if you're even having the argument of which of these two people is better, then the point in contest is whether superpowers matter. Basically. Yeah. I that may irritate some real DC comics fans out there who would say, No, 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 you're missing the subtleties of the character, blah, blah, blah. All right. Sure, fine. <laughs> but I, I'm just saying this if, isn't if really narrowed the question down to these two guys, a major point in conflict is going to be whether or not superpowers matter for 
being the best yeah. superhero. Is it is it cooler to have a bunch of superpowers or is it cooler to not or have money. superpowers but nevertheless have a bunch still of money. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch <laughs> of money and and you know intelligence blah 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 whatever. Anyway, we're getting in the weeds here and How much money do you need before you can be Batman? Like when will Lex Rex get to the point where we can have a Batman? I well, I think never because that would definitely not please the IRS if we. I, I want to give somebody a figure though. Way. So if if we have a listener that wants to make a contribution to enable the Lex mm. Rex Batman, I want to tell him what that number is. Well, the Wayne Corporation I think is definitely shown as being least like worth tens of billions, probably upwards of a hundred billion. So let's call it a hundred billion. No, we we can we can do it. I think we can undercut them for sure. Uh, let's say ten billion. <laughs> Okay. Fine. We're a lot more efficient than the Wayne Corporation. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to waste a bunch of overhead on keeping a massive subterranean complex secret. None of us have butlers. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. I'm saying we'll make we'll make getting Batman a higher priority than hiring an Alfred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I think we're a little bit off the track here. So a little bit. <laughs> anyway, all that to say, on that's, time just, today. <laughs> that's one of my personal personal pet peeves is misuse of that phrase like i said i think it's too far gone losing battle but so don't do it if, folks yeah don't don't say beg the question we mean raise the question anyway <laughs> let's move on <laughs> to the next thing up and this is another sort of a revisit not quite because it actually is about a different law but a couple of weeks ago we were talking about a texas state law that got at least temporarily not upheld but allowed to continue in enforcement basically by a circuit court reverse the injunction against it yeah yeah so if you want to know the details go back and listen i think that was a couple weeks ago but basically texas had this episode so it's getting increasingly difficult to listen to all of them but i think you can still do it at this point (laughs) yeah there's only a few anyway texas had this law imposing limits on social media companies above a certain size florida florida turns out has a similar one or had a similar one and not necessarily similar in all the details but basically aiming at the same goals basically to prevent social media platforms from censoring content for viewpoint basically so preventing you know this is rightly or wrongly has become a bit of a political point lots of people especially conservatives feel that facebook twitter etc moderate comments impose you know shadow bans otherwise manipulate the algorithm to minimize certain kinds of political See, posts I, I always thought of free speech as sort of a left-wing issue you know like the free well, speech movement at berkeley you know and, and it's you know, conservatives traditionally try to police public morality that often includes free speech type things uh, it's interesting that it's been cast as a conservative one in the past few years but i think that's pretty much only because these social media companies tend to be banning those viewpoints nobody really likes their opponent to speak yeah that, that's true and that's <laughs> that's one of the things that i think almost everybody will in theory say that they value freedom of expression freedom of speech but then you know it really comes down to okay but that speech doesn't count um we talked about that too where a lot of people seem to be under the impression that in the u.s hate speech is not protected speech which, you know, unfortunately for them, it That's is. Actually, and... I was going to do an Ask an Attorney video on that that would have come out last Friday. I uh, The internet at our office went down Thursday evening, and I've not had a chance to record that yet, but that's probably going to be the next Ask an Attorney video. It's going to be on the subject of hate speech. Okay. So I don't so we'll want to get too much into the you. weeds on that. Yeah, What's so we'll that? save some, some room for you. But it, anyway, yeah. freedom of speech is one of those things that most people are a big fan of in the abstract, but often push comes to shove when you bring it down to particular instances, they may not like it so much. 
And I think in some ways this turns out to be one of those dividing issues. But Florida introduced this legislation. Because it's got to apply to everybody or it applies to nobody. Exactly. It's exactly. just when you get your guy in power, you can ban your opponent's speech that way. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. Right. <laughs> Yeah, political football. Yeah. We'll get into some of the specifics of the Florida law in a bit because I think some of them are very interesting. But basically, different circuit court, I believe it was the 11th Circuit, that's what I have in my notes anyway, blocked most of this law. They ruled that most of it violated the First Amendment by imposing restrictions on the free speech of these companies. They left some elements of it in place, but very little. I found that interesting because Mm -hmm. I don't think you even get to the First Amendment issues on this. I think that... Yeah. This this law is really easily overruled on the grounds of preemption, uh, possibly even dormant commerce clause. Uh, even the fact yeah. that I'm not I'm not sure that it's clear that Florida has jurisdiction over California tech companies. You know, there's sort of a yeah, right, right now was... there's a huge mishmash of of case law in terms of what because the, the standards for whether or not you can exercise jurisdiction over a corporation is whether or not they have uh, purpose. You know, there's a whole there's a whole test, but like basically whether or not they've extended their commerce to the people of that state. So traditionally, like if they open a headquarters in that state, if there's an ad campaign in that state, internet it's a little bit different because it's sort of in the ether. It's not you know actually on the physical yeah. ground of or I guess the physical swamps of Florida. So <laughs> there's, there's ground that there, That may be right? slightly unkind of Florida. Is there, there's, there's some ground there? Part, parts of it, there's plenty of ground. Parts of it, it's, you know, only 80% swamp. Okay, well, <laughs> okay. well n- neither in the grounds nor the swamps of Florida have they put any kind of advertisement. Yeah. So right now, this is still sufficiently new. I know the Internet's, you know, 25 years old at this point in terms of general widespread usage. But to courts, that's still really, really new. So there's not a consensus about what... Yeah what it looks like to put yourself subject to the jurisdiction of a state in terms of that analysis. But so, so laws like this, I, I think, are they've got to be pretty much ultimately symbolic in, in passing them because there's no guarantee they're even going to be upheld in terms of the jurisdictional issue. Yeah, that's one of the things I think is interesting and in, in many instances sort of unfortunate is that a lot of these things that get a lot of legislative support tend to be because there's a groundswell of public opinion about them that drives representatives to say, oh, you know, I want to do right by my constituents. They're really passionate about this thing. We'll do something about it. But that can lead sometimes to poorly crafted law because often public opinion isn't accounting for some of the nitty gritty on the legal side. Like, do we even have the jurisdiction to do this? And I think that's one of the live issues here. It's been a very hot issue, especially among more active, you know, people with a a more active interest in politics, I think, especially Republicans of late, have been very concerned. Again, I'm not going to weigh in on whether I think it's right or wrong. but Throwing the the former president off of social media, that's a bold move. And I think, I know at least Twitter did that. Several other platforms may have done that. But as soon as you do that, you're certainly going to animate that party's platform. I'm I'm sorry, that party's base. Yeah. Again, you know, no political judgments, but I think it's very clear there's been a lot of heat around that issue and maybe a little less light. And it led, I think, to some. Yeah. Let, let's let's talk about actually about some of the, the specifics of this law, because some of what it purported to do is, I think, pretty extreme. So, I, yeah, let's uh, run down a quick list that I made here. Among other things, it would have prevented social media sites from deplatforming, and they define that basically, you know, limit access for more than a few days, basically. Anyone that, running. That was just for candidates for office, right? Yeah. Anyone running for statewide office. So, so Florida office, candidates for office. Yeah. 
but with pretty hefty fines. So if you're running for statewide office, so running for, you know, Senate in Florida or governor, you know, something like that. State Senate. Yeah. To be clear. Fines up to 250000 a day. And if you're running for a different office, a non-statewide office, up to 25000 a day. And the, oh, now, did it define candidates? It did. And I forget. Did it mean somebody who's actually qualified for the ballot? Because anybody could call themselves a candidate. I'm fairly sure that was what it did. It definitely did provide a definition for a candidate. So that, and it that also ends up giving specific in... protection to political parties then. Because, you know, yeah. I, I could create a party, call it the, the Free Speech Party. We run 10,000 candidates in our elections in the state of Florida. Yeah. We, we're endorsing all 10,000 of them. Yeah. And if you're qualified for the ballots, then that's suddenly a lot of people that this applies right. to. It's just a matter of, you know, we, we have like a, a scratched other's back thing with people who sign the, because uh, I think it's probably, you know, something in the neighborhood of several tens of thousands signatures you need to qualify. We just say, you know, you have to sign the, the petition for everybody else if you want to qualify to get on our list of candidates. Everybody gets enough signatures. We're all on the ballot. Yep. And what, one of the things I thought was interesting, because on the one hand... I don't know how Florida law works for ballot qualification, but this, this certainly does seem like the sort of thing that... You would need to do. ...may not have been that well thought yeah. out. You don't want to give special rights to politicians. No. Politicians should have the same rights the rest of us do. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the questions that prompts is, okay, so how how do you know someone's a candidate? And they, they thought of that and came up with a, a method for this, but it's one of those things where it solves one problem and I think creates a massive different problem, which was they... Yeah, because the fundamental issue is you're giving rights to certain people that other people do not have. Yeah. And I think politicians are about the last group that you should try to give extra rights. Yeah. You know, they're the people that are making our laws. But so th what one of the things this law would have done is require all these major social media platforms to create a method by which you can identify candidates who would who would, you know, qualify for this protection. So you're saying which obviously imposes expense yeah, upon those and probably massive expense because you also need someone to vet all of those candidates and say, OK, they applied for this status. Do they actually qualify for it? How do we know? That's a massive headache, especially if you're, you know, up in Silicon Valley. You don't have anyone on the ground probably in Florida to, you know, talk to local offices. And, you know, you need to figure out a way of getting all this information in a timely well, manner. Again, it's not even clear Florida has jurisdiction over these companies. Yeah, that, and that's a major they may, It could be. It's, it, I don't know if this is true, but it could be the case that n not a single employee of one of these companies has ever been to Florida. Yeah, Un unlikely. But, but it's on the Internet, so you could still access it from Florida. Right. And presumably they're not keeping their main servers in Florida either. But you don't want those to sink into the swamp. No, that would be, or get eaten by a gator. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Do gators eat servers now? I think they'll eat pretty much anything that... Looks, well, they ate Captain you know, Hook's hand. That's true, yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Would have been pretty painful because they don't actually have sharp teeth, so they must have just sort of like... No, no. They, they twist ribs. when yeah. they bite things. Yeah, so just... Well, they, they twist so they can rip things apart. Yeah, Ugh, nasty. Anyway... <laughs> So that's that's one thing it would have done. And as we said, you know, I want to underscore for statewide office they they were going to find these platforms 250,000 daily for having deplatformed, quote unquote. That's a lot. Yeah, that's you know, if you did remove a candidate and then you don't reinstate him during his campaign, you've suddenly cost yourself millions of dollars this way. You know, again, yeah, and obviously, again, these are out-of-state corporations. Yeah, the Florida government has an interest in finding these companies liable for violations of this law. Yeah, because that's money coming from out of state into state. Yep, it's might you know, it's supplement to your tourism <laughs> revenues. Sure, I mean, <laughs> yeah. just I mean, just as a matter of fact, 
they are an interested party in this. Yeah. So anyway, so there, there was that. And as part of that, requiring them all to build this system to identify candidates, they also would have required the platforms. This one I thought was pretty interesting. They would have required any platform that is offering free advertising. And they went on to define that in pretty specific ways. Basically, like, you know, generating content about this person in a way that could feasibly promote them would have required them to notify that, the That's candidates. what the algorithm does, isn't it? I, I think mean, in many all, all of these social media platforms have an algorithm that prioritizes where you're going to fall. That's advertising because yep. that's in making sure that more people will see what you've done. Yeah. yeah I'm pretty sure their definition was crafted such a like, you know, such that it would include that sort of algorithmic prioritization. I don't see how you could possibly exclude that. I, I agree. That, that's, that's how they're choosing what to show you. Yeah. So anyway, would have required them to notify those candidates, which in practical terms probably means anybody who starts to get pushed by an algorithm, just, you know, which is largely autonomous, you'd have to notify that person of that, you know, which means monitoring and I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure they keep track yeah. of what, you know, X candidates' posts have been seen this many times more than this candidate's. Yeah. Here's the proportion that was organic interaction, and here's the proportion that was spurred solely by our algorithm. I don't know that you can even identify that no. because a lot of these algorithms tend to amplify existing organic trends. You know, right. if a hundred people have clicked on something, the algorithm says that's an important thing, and it pushes it higher up so more people see it. Yeah. That's. You know, on the one hand, that is the company deciding to prioritize or promote that content. On the other hand, they're not the ones that identified the content as right. being worthy of promotion. This is one. Okay, so thus far, this this next one is the only one that I would actually prefer to see as a feature on these platforms. A, a lot of this stuff is stuff I would like. Well, <laughs> I'm, I know. don't I don't particularly care if you know they have to pay for it. Which, which is or that's not. important to keep in mind here. Our analysis does not have to do with our personal preferences in terms of what sort of social media platforms we would like to be on. Yeah, that's not really what the law is about. The law is about doing justice to different people. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, we're looking at it from that perspective. Yeah, this this next one is one though that I feel like you know if you ask me and it was if if it were a legitimate thing to say that legal opinions legal decisions will be calibrated just to my preferences, this is the one I'd be unambiguously yes. But I still think it's illegal for them to do it. <laughs> Which have, one's that? They would have required social media platforms to allow you to like opt out of their algorithm presentation of posts so you know the way you go on now and it shows you oh. the things it prioritizes and allows yeah. you to just view the algorithm we were just talking about yeah so i have yeah, been... david i'm gonna go a step further that that's not your personal preference i would say <laughs> there's actually a moral precept here a company is acting immorally <laughs> if, it, if it provides digital content and doesn't give you any ability to sort that digital content yeah you know so <laughs> yeah you know that that's it's a general moral precept, certainly, <laughs> but as a legal proposition, it's their company. I'm not sure they ought to be forced to do it. I'm not sure. I think it's completely philosophically valid to say that's a moral precept, but I would sure like it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say what to what extent, what percentage here I'm joking and what percent serious I am. Fair enough. I'm at least some percent joking. Yeah. Anyway, the, but that's, you know, that's what I really miss about the early days of all the social media stuff was when it was just you went on and they hadn't thought through all this stuff. They hadn't developed these means to target you with different kinds of content. And you could just see, well, at 3 a.m., this guy posted this. He was up late. At 6 a.m., this person posted well, this. They were up early. Ba back in the day, they were all people from, from data-type fields. You know, they, they were computer programmers and uh, people who had worked in statistical analysis, all that kind of stuff. And they were like, oh, well, more information, more content, the better. Yep. And only later on did they get people from 
well, like design fields and said, oh, that's visually very complicated. We can't have that. Or people yeah. from, you know, I guess more uh, customer-oriented fields. Yeah, no, it, it drives me nuts. I, I read Twitter, like, when I'm standing in line and bored, and, you know, it's just sort of a reflex at this point. Probably not a great one, but, you know, it keeps me entertained. But it drives me crazy. A few years ago, it's they It's designed to keep you doing that, too. Yeah, well, they introduced this thing a few years ago where, you know, you start at the top, and you start scrolling down and it's mostly chronological there until you get to a certain point and then it says, in case you missed it, and then it starts feeding you back like mostly the same stuff you've just been scrolling through. <laughs> it drives me absolutely insane. So like I said, if I, I were- I don't use Twitter, but that sounds obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. If I were in charge and it were not- What's the point of that? Completely tyrannical to just impose my desires on a company, I would say, yes, do this. But the fact is that would be tyranny and I'm not in charge. And there's that's probably better for American society in general that I'm not. So I don't think Florida can really do this, but they wanted to. Again, like the, basically the service that Twitter, Facebook, the rest of them offer, their service essentially is the algorithm. Yeah. You know, what, what makes Facebook different from Twitter is the way in which they prioritize posts that people see. You know, they, they also, you know, there's content differences yeah. and whatnot, so on and so but forth. That's, but that's largely what makes the platform the platform is the algorithm. So if anything is a part of these companies' free speech, that's it. it's the algorithm. Yeah. yeah I, I hate it. I hate what they have to say <laughs> but like, because I hate the algorithm. But like I said, when we started this segment, free speech has got to apply to everybody or it means nothing. Yeah. So anyway, there's that one. Even even stupid algorithms have feed you the same thing <laughs> twice in the span of five minutes. Yeah. If if they what they want to say is incessant and repeats the same thing, well then they have a right to say it. Yep. Okay. So the, the back to the the other details of the Florida law though, it would have stopped social media and a lot of this stuff like where you know it imposes restriction on their ability to ban or shadow ban or blah 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 whatever. There are exceptions for obscenity, which has a legal meaning. We won't get into all the details there. But anyway, basically, you know, if you're posting something genuinely heinous in some way as recognized by law, they none of this applies. But it would have stopped social media a shock, platforms. Shocks the conscience yeah. is the, one of the standards there. Yeah. I know it when I see it is the, yeah, the famous phrase. better one, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but it would have stopped social media platforms from deplatforming, shadow banning, whatever, you, you know, blah, 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 all these different terms, any journalistic enterprise. And they basically decide to define that rather as a publisher of a certain volume or size, et cetera. So if you've got enough content. So again, it's about, it's about how many people they reach. So yeah. again, they're giving protections to people based on how many other people agree with them. Yeah. And, okay. you know, in, I, I don't, I don't just as a, a social policy matter, I, I think that approach is very dangerous. I agree. And it, one of the things I think they're concerned about You should about not be happening, catering to the loudest voices. Yeah. And I think one of the things that this law is concerned about happening is that exact thing. Namely, you know, they're, they're concerned about only preferred media being given access to, so, to these social yeah. platforms. They're just saying, but the state has changed it to rather than preferred by Twitter to preferred by the general public. Right. So, but that still a, means... You know, that you get, That's a bit better, but... Yeah. It, it may be a wiser way of doing this, but it still means you're picking and choosing among people who are trying to present content to you in some way or other. Right. Now, so there, there's that. It also would have required, and actually some of this stuff is what the circuit court actually upheld. So it imposes certain requirements for these social media platforms to be very public, very open, very thorough about explaining what their standards are, under what circumstances someone will be 
banned, no. shadow banned. And that makes sense. Yeah. That, that's not a free speech issue. That's a contract rights issue. You know, by using their platform, you're agreeing to contractual terms. Yeah. You have a right to know when you're found in breach of those terms. Yeah. And here's one, though, that you may, you, you know, you'll be able to speak to the legality of this better than me. It certainly seems like it's imposing a very heavy burden, though. So that it would require them to accompany every individual action of banning or shadow banning with a thorough investigation and explanation of how they reach that decision. You know, my opinion on this is that these social media companies have essentially been shirking that burden, which already should have existed. Mm -hmm. Every time somebody signs up to use a service like Twitter, Facebook, that's a contract. Yep. Contracts are something that requires at least some degree of scrupulosity, scrupulousness and attention from both parties. If you're bound to somebody else by contract, you have to at least ensure that the terms of that contract are being followed. Mm -hmm. I think that's largely been ignored by these companies. They don't really treat it as a real contract, uh, except for, you know, it binds the other person to them, but they don't think that it binds them to their users in any way. Yeah. And I, I, so I think that's just compelling due diligence on their part. Okay. Anyway, and, you know, as with the Texas statute, the upshot of all of this is it authorizes individuals who feel that the social media platforms have violated any of these things in respect to them. So if you feel you were improperly or inadequate, you know, something went wrong and you were banned or shadow banned and you feel you shouldn't have been or they didn't handle it right, it allows you to sue them for damages. And that was, you know. How do you calculate damages on this? I think they defined it. Is it just standard? I'm pretty sure that, yeah, they they had a a little fee schedule basically, but I would have to. So it's statutory damages. I think, I think so. Yes. Let me. Interesting. uh, Let me pull that back up. Up to $100,000 in statutory damages per proven claim. Wow. In addition, actual okay, damages. Okay, so that's, that's a statutory so, cap then. You still have yeah. to prove your actual damages. Yeah. Okay, so that's standard common law. You prove how much did it harm you. Yeah, and so I'm guessing that probably is, you know, things like loss of revenue from people clicking on your content or whatever if you're a media outlet, Yeah. blah, 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 et cetera. But so th- this was what the law was designed to do. This is what they put in the actual bill. The 11th Circuit Court struck down most of it, basically with the exception of those disclosure requirements. Just to take a step back, looking at the requirements this law imposed, it's very, very clear that Florida was taking the position that these social media companies do not have a right to free speech, that they must be treated or should be treated as common carriers. Right. how, How do I know that? Well, because as we've gone through it's very, very clear these laws are not respecting a right to free speech for an entity that would have that right to free speech. Now, I'm not going to voice my opinion on whether or not social media companies ought to be treated as common carriers. I think there's a very strong case that maybe they should. But, you know, that's a a tough question, and it's beyond the purview of what we're doing today. We may talk about that in the future. But long story short, the court ruled we're not going to treat them as common carriers. Therefore, the regular rules of free speech apply, and we're going to overrule a lot of this on the grounds of free speech. Yeah. And as you alluded to earlier, we both thought this was an interesting element of the opinion of the court that they put out. They did seem very eager to sort of skip over. That may be a slightly pejorative way of putting it. To I think it's an accurate to, way of putting it. It may, it may be accurate, but it, it is it can be both. <laughs> but they, they decided to look at the free speech issues yeah, predominantly rather than instead of what I would call jurisdictional con- constitutional issue. Well, 
jurisdictional issues of preemption, commerce clause, really those two. Yeah. And so they, they basically said the group representing these social media companies, they wanted us to look at the issue of this being preempted by federal law. And we instead decided to treat it, you know, exclusively under the, the heading of First Amendment rights. And they said it basically in a footnote. So, just, just so you guys are aware, I think people probably don't know this, but just so you guys are aware, judges are only supposed to rule on the matters that are before them. Right. And if there's a solid basis for ruling on a case that, by, you know, by ruling on this issue, you don't even get to some of the other weightier issues. Yeah. Uh, you're supposed to rule on that one first. And the way that this analysis works is if there's a, both a constitutional challenge and a statutory challenge, you go with the statutory challenge first, and if you find that the law does not meet scrutiny on the statutory challenge, in other words, you know, it's invalid for whatever statutory reason, you don't get to the constitutional challenge. As we've mentioned before, our law kind of exists in a hierarchy with the Constitution at the top, and like with any other chain of command, you raise questions up the chain of command. You don't start at the top, you start at the bottom, and only if you've gotten through all these levels do you ever get to the top. Yeah. Well, the question of federal preemption which I've alluded to several times already, but is is basically whether or not Congress has articulated a scheme for regulating in a particular area of law. And that this is implied preemption, by the way. There's also express preemption where Congress has said, you know, states can't make laws about this. But for implied preemption, if Congress's legislative scheme shows that they intended to be the only people making laws about a certain thing. They didn't want states making laws about that. Then whatever the state, when a state does try to make a law about that, that law is implicitly preempted by federal law pursuant to the supremacy clause of the Constitution. What the court said in this case, and I, I find this crazy, you know, I think this is a crazy argument. Anybody out there who disagrees, you know, feel free to contact me. That's, that's fine. I, you know, I like disagreement. But they said that both of the questions, the free speech questions, so the First Amendment question, and this preemption question were both constitutional questions therefore they could deal with the free speech one instead yeah that's crazy to me because even though preemption operates by virtue of the of the supremacy clause of the constitution the actual law on point is the law preempting the state one right that's a statutory question yeah and it it gave me that, that was totally boneheaded in my opinion yeah and it gave the impression partly because they they made that argument in particular where they you know they had they said we know normally you start non-constitutional and then go to constitutional but really all the arguments were constitutional because of the supremacy clause they made right. that little argument in a footnote which gave it a very that, sort of tossed off if that's kind if of that's air. your rationale if that if if preemption always and, and necessarily must be a constitutional issue then all legal issues are constitutional because all laws existing under the United States must exist pursuant to the Constitution's authority. Right. It's, yeah, it it, it gave the air of a little sleight of hand where it's like, we could do this, you know, the the normal way, the right way. But what we're really interested in is making a ruling on how this relates to free speech rights, because that's sort of a bigger thing. And you know, I, I'm very cautious to, to ever criticize the motives of a judicial officer because I, I don't think that's right. You know, it's yeah. we owe them the benefit of the doubt that they're being consistent with their judicial philosophy at the very least. But what I will say is if a judge were more interested in <laughs> courting the media or in making a name for himself in the news than about having a judicially consistent and legally valid well, or, or you know he might act similarly to this 
or I think to be a little, you know, maybe a middle ground in terms of the charitableness with regard to the judge, maybe he just thought this was an important free speech issue that should be settled as soon as possible. But well, but that's that's what I'm saying is is if that would if that was his that's, motivation, that's still not good. I, I get that. But no, it may as be, a judge, you're supposed to rule on the basis of the law, not what you think is important. Right. Right. And yeah. And the, the voters get to vote on what they think is important. Legislators get to legislate what they think is important. You don't get to do that as a judge. Yeah. You're you know, we've said it before. We'll probably say it many times again. But in many ways, all this legal stuff is really just a series of technical questions about order of operations almost. And in this case, and he got the operations wrong. Yeah. You know, he did the addition and subtraction before he did the multiplication. Yeah. Because he said, well, they're a lot like multiplication. <laughs> <laughs> or just I I I know that if I do this the right way, it ends up being one of those trick questions where it's like something times zero. But I really like nine times seven. I like that equation. It's fun to me. And I wanted to end up as nine times. <laughs> he seven. didn't say that. But... <laughs> yeah. But you know, I you know, you guys probably listening to our podcast are probably frustrated that we're not really talking about the substance of this law much at all. We're getting in the weeds about technical. Yeah. What, what you guys might pejoratively term minutia, and that might be true. Let me just say sort of as a broad umbrella thing to keep in mind when talking about this subject. I, I'm largely sympathetic to the idea that social media companies have far, far too much power in our political order and that we've got to find some constitutionally valid way of keeping that power in check. I think Florida really picked the wrong way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess good point to just sort of reiterate the general mission statement, not only for the podcast, but for the organization we are not intended to advance political goals, political causes. We all have political opinions, of course, individually, and most of us tend to have fairly similar ones. But that's not what we're here for. What we're and here. We, we, that's not true. We've we've got. Uh, well, I'm not going to name names, but there's there's a variety. <laughs> I said I said mostly. I, I I put it at like sixty percent similar-ish views, but it's probably true. Yeah, yeah. but. That's not what the point is. That's not what we're here for. And if you could be any number of points on the political spectrum, if we think you have a valid case at law, we're here to help you with it. Yeah. So anyway, all yeah. that to say. And, and, and I think there are good, solid, legal, non-political reasons why having excessive power in the hands of social media companies is a very dangerous thing for our republic. Yeah. So I'm not saying that as a political statement. I'm saying that as a, a legal one. Yeah. However... Given that we want to curtail the power of social media companies, I because you know, like I was saying, even if this had been upheld on free speech grounds, even if this judge had said, yeah, I'm going to make the leap and I'm going to classify social media companies as common carriers so they have no free speech rights. I think this law fails for three other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You should never have gotten to that issue if you'd been. No. You know. Yeah. And then even if the law ends up getting upheld for those other reasons I mentioned it's still probably not going to be enforceable because there's still the jurisdictional question of whether or not Florida courts can exercise jurisdiction over California companies that have never... Yeah, unless suddenly... At least explicitly extended their services to Florida. Yeah, unless suddenly Facebook or... Well, it's it's Meta, right? Now, Meta Inc. or something like that, or they changed their name to, I didn't, I, to I something I know Google's though. Alphabet now. Yeah, yeah, Google's Alphabet. I'm pretty sure Facebook rebranded to Meta anyway. Whatever. If unless one of them okay. suddenly decides that they want to be headquartered, there's in. an athlete called Meta World Peace, isn't there? Maybe yeah, but he he spelled it uh, differently. I'm pretty sure it was like an Arabic word or something. In his case, M E T T A, huh. not M E T A. 
Yeah, used to be right. Ron Artest. Well. Anyway, <laughs> that's 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 really not relevant here. What I was saying though is, unless suddenly one of these companies decides they're going to start, you know, being headquartered in Tallahassee or Jacksonville or something, it's doubtful that Florida could really have done anything about this anyway. But or if they put a, you know, but they put up billboards in Florida saying join Facebook. Yeah. And there's the Florida's obviously got jurisdiction over Facebook. Yeah. They probably do. Uh, I'm doubt again because it's internet. I, I can't give definite statements on this stuff. Yeah. Right. Right now, our law is a total mishmash across the country for how courts treat it. Yeah. So I'm not going to say anything definite in, about that. Empirically speaking, I don't think I've ever seen a print ad for a social media company in any format. Pretty sure it's. They don't generally need to. Yeah, because if if you're the kind of person who would use an online social media platform, you're probably online more often than you're looking at billboards. So it's now if we were talking about Netflix. Yeah. So Netflix is a different issue because remember they they mail out CDs and they mail out CDs across the country. They may have stopped doing that. So I'm not sure if got, they're still doing the. I think they still do. Maybe I, you could convince me. Well, even way. even if they stopped doing it, they've still at some point yeah. voluntarily put their product into the stream of commerce in those states. Uh, and then also, I, I guess that the reason that Netflix is able to stream so fast when you watch something streaming on Netflix is it's not shooting you all the way back to a server in California or wherever Netflix is based when you want to stream something. Netflix will partner with local ISPs and they'll put their boxes with hard drives in them at, at the local distribution center for internet. Yeah. And then you're actually just having to go, you know, at that point, maybe a mile or so to get access to their movies and TV shows. Yeah. Well, that very obviously is engaging in commerce in the state of Florida. Right. I don't know if Facebook and Twitter are doing anything like that. I'm, I don't know a ton about the IT situation yeah. for these companies. Me neither. I don't know if they, you know, install their own servers or if they piggyback on other people's servers in exchange for fees. I don't know how that works, but my bet is Florida legislators probably know a lot less about it than I do <laughs> because they're legislators and they tend to not understand matters of the demon box. <laughs> but, That's but, another old reference. You can find that in one of our episodes. It's not probably worth it just but, for that phrase, but... If My point really is, curious. you don't want to get a really controversial law like this that even if it gets upheld, is unenforceable for jurisdictional reasons. Right. And there's there's, there's a, a certainly a pretty good chance that it would be. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's the Florida matter. I'm guessing we're probably going to end up seeing something at the Supreme Court level about, because as we said, it's not just Florida. Texas had this. I think other states are working on similar things. I'm guessing we're probably going to see the Supreme Court have to take on something like this at some point. But for now, Florida got to know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, even if a federal law had the same details as this Florida law, it would be, a, I think it still have a lot of issues, but it'd be a lot more enforceable. Really, yeah. the main issue I see here is that it's a state trying to do it. Yeah. All right. So as I sort of mentioned in brief earlier, one of the things we're going to talk about today isn't really news. It's not, you know, not a report on an event or anything like that, but something that I came across a little while ago, we ended up posting it to our Facebook page. You can see it there, but it was an essay written by a guy named Angus McClellan for the website Law and Liberty. It's a good site, by the way. They, yep. they have some good content. A lot of stuff that is a little off the track for us, but interesting stuff. You know, I can give a personal recommendation, but anyway, he wrote this piece basically as a sort of call for all people who take an originalist view of constitutional interpretation, which would include us as an organization to sort of rally around a unified methodology. So yeah, 
So th- that that's I think one of the peop- things people don't really know is that originalism is a very broad category. Yeah. There are lots of different kinds of originalists. And I guess Angus McClellan doesn't like that. So what does he yeah. suggest? <laughs> well, he says, you know, and this calls for this calls for some qualification because he says, you know, at, at its root level, we should all agree on what he calls the Blackstonian method. So basically the the canons of interpretation. William Blackstone. Method. Yeah. Set up by yeah. William Blackstone, who is and probably. And if you've watched much of our content, you know, we're, we're a big fan of that guy. Uh, yeah. n- not so much because, you know, we just personally like him, but because he was the legal authority at the time that the founding fathers were writing the Constitution. You know, there's yeah. sections of the constitutional debates where they will actually look things up in Blackstone's commentaries to see how they worked. He, he yeah. was the authority on how the law worked at that time. Yeah. So you had a question about how something was supposed to work. You're like, uh, you know, not quite sure how this goes. He'd be the person you would turn to, specifically his his work commentaries. Commentaries and, on the laws of England, which yeah. were sort of the third such work that had been written or third major such work that had been written in the history of English law. Uh, first was by Bracton, I think like I want to say 1100s, and then obviously there's the one by Cook. And then Blackstone comes along, and he wrote, yeah. I think, in the 1750s and was still very, very influential in the English colonies. Edmund Burke, in his speech on conciliation with the American colonies, mentions that as many copies of Blackstone's commentaries had been sold in the American colonies as were sold in England, which is, given the population difference and wealth difference, and you know more specifically the number of printing presses difference. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that is a huge statement. So very, very popular in the colonies. Yeah. Anyway, so he says, basically, we should follow what Blackstone says, which is this, you know, multi-phase method. But he makes a particular recommendation for the, at the point where you get to... Especially because all all of the Blackstone commentaries that were printed in the colonies would have been bootleg copies. So they, (laughs) assuming they weren't bootleg copies, that means they were imported. Yeah. Yeah, but I think which, they probably were bootleg copies. So probably a lot of them. But anyway, so McClellan <laughs> they says cut out though, the part about uh, intellectual property. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> McClellan says when you get to the point where you're considering precedent, basically, so you're you're looking at past decisions for guidance, you should always start with what he calls contemporaneous construction. So in other words, precedent from which that principles sound. Okay. That I, I have issues with his application of that principle. That principle is sound. Okay. But anyway, basically what that would mean is rather than looking at the most recent precedent from your point of view, what the latest decisions have been, the first place you look is at the oldest applicable precedent. So the earliest court records. That, that's the application yeah. of that principle. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. So a, a contemporaneous statement. Is that, is that what he says, contemporaneous, contemporaneous I believe he, the phrase he uses or? is construction, contemporaneous construction. Contemporaneous, yeah, construction, is referring to, I think it's the third item, might be the fourth item, in Blackstone's Canons of Statutory Interpretation. So I, I just briefly I want to kind of explain what that is. Basically, Blackstone is giving a how-to manual, at least in part of what he wrote, giving a how-to manual on the interpretation of the law. And because you got to have some kind of method when laws are ambiguous, right? So what he says is very first thing you look at, obviously, is you look at the words of whatever a law says. So applying this to the Constitution, you'd look at the words of the First Amendment. And he says those are to be understood in their usual and most known signification. Yeah. Obviously, that's within a particular art. 
So he says, again, terms of arts or technical terms must be taken according to the accepted or learned use in whatever trade they're in. So legal terms would be construed in their generally accepted legal usage. Yeah. Uh, and then as he says, if, if you can't resolve an ambiguity from doing this, from just looking at the words of what something says within their context, next you'd look at, so he says, when words are still dubious, next thing you'd look at is their context. So you would look at the words that surround them. If this section of the Constitution is talking about powers of Congress, even if it's not clear this thing's a power of Congress, we could look at it in light of the other things that are being discussed. That might give some light about what it means. So next thing he says you look at is the subject matter. So if a, if a statute has a really broad statement, so say that it regulates something like the purchase of food. And we know all of these regulations are food regulations. And someone mentions something about corn. Well, it's probably not going to apply to a display of Indian corn that somebody puts up for Thanksgiving because they're not eating that. So again, it's about outside the subject matter of the legislation. And the next thing says to look at is the effects and consequences of the rule. What that basically means is if the effect ends up having some kind of logical absurdity or so like the, the example that he uses is a law that says whatever drew blood in the streets should be punished with the utmost severity and then he says yeah obviously that doesn't apply to surgeons drawing blood that means you know, dismembering people setting people with a sword so that's the effects or consequences that you look at it's not that you're just looking for good effects or bad effects but you're trying to gauge what the purpose of the law is from those effects uh, and then lastly, he says that you would look at basically what he calls to be the reason behind the law, the purpose for which it was written. You could call that the spirit of the law. That's the very last thing you look at, only when the law is still ambiguous at that point. Uh, and you know, people are way overly broad in their application of this. It doesn't just mean the general <laughs> thing the law happens to be about. Uh, it means so, so the example he gives was uh, Cicero talks about a law where a ship was cast onto the land by a storm. And the law said that when that happens, you forfeit all the property within that ship. So then, you know, an instance came up where there's a dangerous tempest and all the mariners forsook the ship except for one sick passenger. And then that sick passenger stayed in the ship when it ran aground. So the question was, does that sick passenger come into possession of everything in the ship because the ship wasn't actually forsook? Uh, well, obviously, that was sort of outside the bounds of what that law was talking about. So he says that it wouldn't apply. But yeah. those are the different steps that you go through. What Angus McClellan is talking about is, I think he says this refers to the subject matter step. I believe, is yeah, that that's right? the heading. I, I'm pretty sure that's the heading he sort of stowed this under. Okay. So he's saying, and again, just to remind you guys, subject matter was the one where we talked about, you know, if a law is about food regulation, I'm probably not going to regulate display like, like ornamental Indian corn. He's saying another means by which you determine the subject matter of a law is to look at the immediate context of that law. So the circumstances in which it was written, which would include the society in which it was written. He doesn't say all this in his article. This is sort of implied. I don't know how he expects you to infer this if you aren't familiar <laughs> with Blackstone, uh, but I guess he sort of does. And what he's saying is to determine that context, you want to look at 
com- contemporaneous expressions. That, that's the, the word he uses, right? He says contemporaneous construction or contemporaneous exposition. That's right. So exposition or construction. Contemporaneous exposition or construction. That makes sense. Obviously, if we look at a text and it's ambiguous because we don't use the same language anymore or we just don't know what they're referring to, you're going to want to look at people who are around at the same time and see how they would have understood it. That's what this contemporaneous construction is going to refer to. Now, where he makes a leap in my opinion, is saying that means you ought to prioritize old cases over new ones. Because I guess the, I guess the rationale there, the line of logic, is that old cases are going to be closer to the time in which the Constitution was written. There may be some truth to that. And I think certainly cases that purport to do that are going to be more authoritative than newer cases. But you know, I, I think really the most relevant application of this contemporaneous construction rule is going to be you, who do we look at for who a reasonable interpreter of the Constitution would, be, would have been at the time of its ratification? Well, state ratifying conventions, right? He totally ignores that aspect of it. He, he's saying, you know, when you're looking at contemporaneous constructions, you ought to be looking at cases. But we actually have the very people who were charged, entrusted with ratifying this Constitution, we know exactly what they understood it to mean when they were ratifying it because they kept records of their conventions. Within limits, but yeah. I mean, we've, we've got like a 100-page transcript of what right. Patrick well, Henry had to say in Virginia. Yeah, and that can make it pretty clear, but we have a whole thing about, you know, you can look up one of our videos. It's called how uh, to read, I, how not to read. How to read the minds what, of the founding fathers. Yeah. Although I think we may be changing the title of that one, but okay. Anyway, we do have a video the, on this. The conclusion was you can't read their minds, but what you should do is. But you look shouldn't at what they, read their minds either. <laughs> yeah, you should look at you know the documents and there are tools that help you figure out what the documents meant at the time to the people who were. You know, anyway, yeah. all that to say. But the, the significance, yeah. so Blackstone did not live in a constitutional republic like we do. He was not looking at enactments that had been ratified by the people. He was right. looking at enactments that had been passed by Parliament. What's unique about our Constitution is that it's a compact. It had to be ratified by the states. It's essentially a contract. And if you know how contracts work, you know there's got to be a meeting of the minds. Both parties had to understand the same thing when they put their pens to paper. You can look at extrinsic. I mean, really, you want to look within the four corners of the document to determine that. You know, you're not going to allow parole evidence, but you're going to look at different things when construing contract language as well. Like if it's a construction contract, you're going to look at construction terms. So I think really a relevant part of this consideration is going to be looking at exactly what the people thought they were getting when they voted on this thing. And that's going to be the state ratifying conventions. Yeah. So all that to say, you're not exactly on board with his particular sort of candidate for the one true original. No, I am on board with the Blackstonian method. I think that the Blackstonian method is the correct method for originalism. I don't think he's correctly identified the Blackstonian method. I think that he's sort of actually been a little, I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional, but he's been a little bit deceptive about what he's doing. Because he says, we should unite around the Blackstonian method, and then just makes a huge leap to, well, that means X, Y, and Z. Yeah, but you're probably not on board with the details of this essay. But one of the things that I thought... I, I, I will say, I am on board with the idea that older case law binds newer case law. Mm-hmm. I think that by nature of what case law is doing, if if you're doing if, if you are if you have judges who are properly making the sort of opinions they ought to, which is far from a given in constitutional right. law, but I'm saying you know, in an ideal world, if judges are making the sort of rulings they ought to, the newer rulings are going to have greater specificity than the old ones. 
So of course you're going to cite the newer ones. That doesn't mean they're more authoritative than the older ones. In fact, the older ones are more authoritative. So when deciding whether or not to overrule something, you're going to be much more likely to overrule a new thing than you are an old thing. Right. But if if you're looking daily, run-of-the-mill, assuming this isn't supposed to be overturned, you're probably going to look at newer cases. Yeah. So, okay. So fair enough on that point. One of the things I thought was an interesting, I guess, uh, question to consider, raised the question, did not beg the question, that uh, <laughs> of whether or not it's really necessary to push for, you know, one originalist way of doing things or yeah. whether there's... And I don't think there is. Yeah, I really don't think there's there room is. for, you know, because I think... One of the biggest criticisms of originalists tends to be you only accept people with your same interpretive methodology. And yeah. if they don't have that methodology, you just call them a bad judge. You know, yeah. I would I would say actually being a judge is synonymous with originalism because you're not supposed to be voicing your own opinions. You're supposed to be looking at what the law says. And all that originalism really stands for is the proposition that <laughs> the law should do what it was supposed to do when it was enacted. Yeah. Now, there can be any number of different means of going about determining what that is. And I'm yeah. fine with pretty much all of them. We can have reasonable minds differ on that. Uh, I would accept any of those people as upstanding members of the judiciary. But, yeah. of course, I do have my own opinions about how originalism ought to be applied. Yeah. I, th- I think in, it comes back in many ways to a principle we've talked about repeatedly on this podcast already, that what you're looking for in law is often, above anything else, just consistency of application. You want to be able to determine yeah. how something will be applied so that you can know, am I violating the law or not when I do this? And I think to a lesser extent, that's a really, really important quality for individual judges to have. Like, obviously, individual judges shouldn't be in a position to influence the whole system, but you'd want to be sure that a given judge is likely to rule similarly in similar cases. And I think right. one of the ways you do that is just by being consistent with your own interpretive method. I think, that, right. you know, and, it and makes sense that there would be differences. English McClellan's, pretty, English McClellan's fairly imprecise about how he would actually apply this methodology. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if what he envisions is that in disputes, people would only cite very old cases. But if that is what he envisions, that's something that would lead to a great deal of uncertainty in outcomes yeah. of cases, because you would never resolve issues. You would never be able to move past the same argument they had in Gibbons v. Ogden. You know, right. we, would, we would just always be about whether or not navigation is commerce. You, you couldn't get to whatever the next, I should not have picked commerce clause. Because <laughs> that's, the, that's the exact area where the court decided not to act consistently with what the constitution said, but. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, in, as you said earlier, actually, I think there is a sense in which always going back to the older cases undermines their authority because in theory, if they were operating authoritatively and correctly, they would just set the parameters for later decisions to fall That's exactly within. correct. That's exactly so, correct. Yeah. So yeah. like if you've already built the dance floor, you don't need to look at the planks. You need to look at, you know, the steps people are doing. That's how you would judge the dancing. So let's look at this in abstract. You've got cases one, two, three, four, and five, and those are in chronological order. You know, case one was in 1789, case two was in 1810, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. If you're arguing in a case, you know, if if your opponent says, look, the conclusion you're arguing for doesn't agree with case five, I think it is an acceptable, valid, correct way of arguing to say, you know, it may not agree with case five, but it agrees with case four. 
And case mm-hmm. four is what case five was based on. And I would say if that's what Angus, Angus McClellan means by older case law is more authoritative, 100% he's correct. Because if yeah. case five is based on case four, case four is more authoritative. And then you know, if they want to come back and say, okay, well, it may be based on case four, but it doesn't agree with case three, I, I should be able to come back and say, well, it may not agree with case three, but it agrees with case two, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. That should be a valid way of arguing about this. Yeah. Anyway. We've probably gone on long enough about that, so we're going to get into... That's, we got an awfully abstract... Judicial yeah. philosophy, interpretive philosophy, methodology, is always going to be pretty abstract. It's very important. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of opinions about it, as I'm sure you can tell, but uh, <laughs> may not yeah. be everyone's cup of tea. No. <laughs> but anyway, so we're going to move on to our, in theory, our main topic of conversation. We probably ended up spending about as much time on that last one as we will on this one. But uh, last week... And actually, this one relates. This one directly relates because, remember, our our thing was about whether or not laws produce predictable outcomes. Well, take it away, David. Yeah, so last week... I've said that a lot today. We we spent... (laughs) Yeah, it could be a catchphrase. We spent a lot of time on a recent case that involved the SEC and specifically the SEC's administrative courts. And among other things, we were talking about, you know, what are these regulatory bodies really about? What are they up to? What are they, you know, how do they work? Anyway, we, we alluded anyway, if you to... don't know what administrative agencies are, look at last week's podcast. Yeah. I don't want to repeat everything we said about administrative agencies last yeah. week. Uh, this week, our focus is going to be a little bit more narrow. Specifically, I think we're going to look at how we got here. Yeah, <laughs> well, so, so a couple of things that we wanted to hit. One, yeah, like how did we end up here? You know, if regulatory bodies have all these issues that we talked about last week, how did we end up here in the first place? And in addition, we wanted to talk about why is this something that we, you know, came up with? What are the alternatives to a regulatory-based system? And, you know, how would that work, basically? Because I think one of the things that makes people very cautious when it comes to deregulation is the idea that suddenly things are going to be unsafe, uncontrolled, etc. And that's not necessarily If nobody valid. tells them not to put fingers in my sausages, I'm only going to get sausage fingers. Maybe we should try to come up with a finger new analogy. Finger sausages, rather. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe we people should try like to come that one. up with a new analogy versus, well, you know, I think, you know, it's fine, but we, we, we got comments that we kind of used the phrase finger sausages a lot last week. So maybe we'll just come up with something different. But let's see what else they regulate virtually everything so we could use something else. Maybe Yeah. Uh they're afraid that their Kool-Aid will be gasoline or something, I guess. I don't know. Well they do <laughs> it's gotta be only thirty percent gasoline. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, I'm worried that if the FDA doesn't make it very clear to the Kool-Aid Corporation, I don't know who their parent company is. I'm sure there's it's not Kool-Aid Inc. But you know, if they don't make it very clear up front that you can't put more than one part per million of gasoline into this drink, that you're breaking the law. You got to go to French Guiana if you want to do that. <laughs> That's a little dark. And that, was, that wasn't actually Kool-Aid. For <laughs> those right, of you who may, who may be interested in Jonestown and the Jonestown tragedy, they were not drinking Kool-Aid. They were drinking knockoff Kool-Aid called so d- Flavor-Aid. So don't drink the Flavor-Aid. Yeah, that should be the, the expression, cool- yeah. <laughs> the Kool-Aid's fine. Yeah, the Kool-Aid is the superior product. <laughs> this, we're probably going to have to cut this. Yeah, the Kool-Aid should make an ad campaign, you know, not the beverage used at Jonestown. Yeah, well, you know, has never been used in a mass suicide. Mass suicide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, now let's let's get into it. So, 
we wanted to start with. And they regulate where, all kinds of things besides food. They regulate basically anything. You know, the air, the yeah. breathe, we want, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the thoughts we yeah. think, the you know everything, <laughs> well, you know, com- every aspect of human life. I think food's particularly easy to understand because a, I think it's a little bit more relatable about why you might want to have laws about that, and it's yeah. not going to be something that's really complicated like a, the, a lot of the business regulations. So it works yeah, well for examples. But there's, yeah, there's there's regulations on banking. There's regulations on machinery of all various kinds you know pretty much anything you can think of that there's a business that does it there's regulations. even if there's not a business that does it have there's postal regulations actually there are businesses exa- well, that do that i suppose but yeah the question of where the regulatory state comes from can be answered sort of on two levels one is like you know where the specific american version comes from and then one is more broadly where does this idea come from in general but why don't we start with the American regulatory state. Yeah. In an American context, there's two real watershed moments for the federal bureaucracy. The first one is going to be the Civil War. Uh, yeah. And then really the, the much larger one is mm-hmm. going to be the FDR administration. He, he served New deal. at least part of four terms. He was in for a long, long time, 12 years. Yeah. And that gave him a lot of time to do a lot of stuff. And part of this is, the, so we mentioned last week, at least in terms of non-delegation doctrine, so whether or not Congress can deputize an executive agency to make laws on its behalf, the standard on that comes from a 1922 case. And that's J.W. Hampton Jr. v. United States. And, you know, 1922, this case really came at kind of an unfortunate time because it, you, you can see where this intelligible standard principle came from a court that was not terribly concerned that this is going to come up a whole lot or that this standard was going yeah. to be used all that widely. But then lo and behold, you know, 10 years later, FDR comes into office and J.W. Hampton ends up getting cited a whole lot. It's actually a Taft opinion. President Taft was Supreme Court Justice and you know, King yep. Chief Justice, and he wrote that one. Kind of as a far fun as, fact. Still the only guy, right, who has ever been both, as far as I know? Yes. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yep. He also, uh, fun, another fun fact, he used to sometimes golf at a course where I used to caddy as a middle schooler. And uh, there's a, a particular sand bunker that they called the Taft Bunker. Anyway. Hmm. Yeah, was <laughs> Just, it was it know. created when he, like, fell? or? Well, no. Okay, so we will get it. All right. So Taft, famously, very large man, you know, very corpulent, let's say. Um, the joke was that the <laughs> another good word for the, the day. Yeah, the the caddies at this club kept a rope hidden in the woods near this particular bunker because its sides were so steep that he might have needed a hand getting out. As far as I know, <laughs> that's an urban legend. Never actually happened. And to his credit, he got in much better shape after he was president. Lost quite a bit of weight. You know, got reasonably healthy. Um, so good, good for, for him. him. Good for but, him. But uh, yeah, he went he through had time some even as a Supreme Court justice to do that. That's commendable. Yeah, but yeah. So the Taft bunker. <laughs> the joke was keep a rope nearby in case you need to fish the president out. Anyway, FDR. We were talking about FDR. Yeah, but well. So just to be clear, this intelligible principle rule in the J.W. Hampton case uh, looked at a case basically in which the president could decide what levels of tariffs were for different products, and said that 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 uh, Congress had unconstitutionally delegated to the president the power to set tariffs because you know congress is supposed to set the tariffs and that's where they say you know the president was given authority to create contextual tariffs and he was given an intelligible principle whereby to do that so that's where we get that test that test gets applied you know everywhere but the kitchen sink during the <laughs> fdr administration at, and at first yeah. the court actually cites that principle against him so, mm-hmm. really, I mean, we mentioned last week 
there's been really no non-delegation jurisprudence for the past 80 years. The last two cases that really relied on this principle are going to be the Schechter Poultry case and the Panama Refining Company case. Both of those are 1935 cases. And what mm-hmm. the Panama Refining case looked at was one of the provisions of the National Industrial Recovery Act had authorized the president to prohibit interstate and foreign transportation of petroleum. It produced in excess of certain quotas that he'd imposed. Because remember, part of the New Deal was to say that the reason our economy is so bad is that we just make too much stuff. Less stuff will make the economy better. So we we're going we're gonna to regulate how much petroleum there can be. And it basically gave the president authority to decide whether or not he was going to prohibit excess petroleum. Yeah. Court said that he couldn't do that, citing non-delegation doctrine. Next case is Schechter Poultry. That one's on a whole lot of other issues. But the big one is, so basically another provision of the National Industrial Recovery Act was that the presidency could consult with local boards, usually private boards, that had imposed regulations on whatever their industry was, and he could decide whether or not the executive was going to use and enforce those regulations. And you know, famously, this is the sick chicken case where one of the provisions that FDR had decided to enforce was one saying that you can't pick out your chicken if you're if you're slaughtering the chicken. Chickens have to be slaughtered basically at random. But that applied to meat markets too. So you have to kind of blindly grab at chickens. Uh, and this you know mm-hmm. sort of made headlines for a while. When one of the justices was like, well, what if the chickens run to the other side of the pen? How are you going to do that? Uh, but anyway, that, that one ends up getting overturned as well. So FDR doesn't like it. He says, a lot of my New Deal isn't going through because of these stupid justices. So he introduces to Congress a scheme to pack the court where they're going to add a new justice for every justice over the age of, I think it was 70. This is very, very unpopular, wildly unpopular. Court packing schemes have always been among the most unpopular things you can do in this country. People really didn't like it. FDR nevertheless sticks to his guns on it until Robin, Robin, Robert Owens, I'm sorry. Owen Roberts, <laughs> Judge Roberts, uh, <laughs> decides yeah, one of that he is, yeah, engages in the switch in time that saved nine. And he, yeah. rather than voting to strike down New Deal policies, begins upholding New Deal policies and FDR drops his court packing scheme. And non-delegation doctrine is not really used again by the court after this until a court case that I wrote the brief on, by the way, on behalf of the Center for Constitutional (laughs) Jurisprudence, Gundy v. United States. And this ends up Mm -hmm. being the turning point where, once again, separation of powers begins to be upheld by the court and justice and rule of law are restored throughout the (laughs) Yeah, and we're still in that process of restoring justice and rule of law throughout the land. But but that is really that's the turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that was a I think that was a 2019 case. Non-delegation is now a live doctrine where cases can be litigated again. This has not been true since FDR bullied the court into dropping that doctrine 80 years yeah. ago. And so yeah, I, the, the more famous effect of the switch in time to save nine was that things stopped being struck down on Commerce Clause grounds. You know, that's. That's the one you hear yeah. about. Uh, that's It was both. Uh, Commerce Clause is certainly the more famous of the two. The reason it's more famous of the two is because that's become a live issue again as well, but that became a live issue quite a while longer ago, uh, 1995 case. It's the Lopez case, which held that, yeah. hey, banning guns in schools has nothing to do with commerce. You can't do that. And that sort of made Commerce Clause a live issue again. But now non-delegation, which debatably is the more significant of the two doctrines, is back on the table. So there's yeah. your summary. That's probably more than you wanted, David. 
<laughs> no, no, that's fine. Especially because in in many ways, sort of the lifeblood of the I, w- I don't want to say regulatory system, but the regulatory agency system, sort of the the actual apparatus of government, has been the abeyance of the non-delegation doctrine. Basically, as long yeah. as people weren't prepared to really consider it or weren't prepared to do more than just sort of say yeah, blah, 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 whatever. We have a law saying we're in charge of this stuff now. That's what really let the agency sort of thrive. Yeah. But well, that's why I mentioned the case that established this intelligible principle rule was not yeah. anticipating this huge no. ballooning <laughs> of executive agencies. You know, when you think you've got a relatively unimportant issue that's only going to be heard this one time, it's not going to come up again. Human nature is to be a little bit less judicious in making sure that very clear standards are articulated. That's how we got this intelligible principle rule. Really, our organization advocates for the replacement of that rule with with one that's actually judicially able. Uh, I guess the is a more judicially <laughs> manageable standard. Yeah, one that it's clearer which things run afoul of it and which things are consistent with it. Because we need one. Yeah, you know, we've we've yeah. got. A lot of executive, like I said last week, if you picked out letters at random from one of those lottery machines, my bet is if you picked any three, you're going to get an executive agency. <laughs> I think a lot of the sort of inertia that goes along with the acceptance of the agency system, sort of the way it is, that you know, is that I think people have a, a couple different sort of ideas in their head. One is that this is sort of like, this is always the way it is and always has been, blah, blah, blah. That's one sort of way I think people think about it. It's just this is what governments do. They make rules about everything. And I think another one, which is... I think the more... You go ahead. Well, a related one, but obviously incompatible one, is governments used to do nothing, basically, Mm -hmm. other than like maybe Mm -hmm. like make war. And then as we modernized, we started regulating everything. Yeah, and these so are the why, needs of the modern world is the one that yeah. I hear. They didn't need and to do this back when people used whatever, you know, wa- washed their clothes by hand and didn't have refrigerators didn't have and yeah. yeah, they didn't even have yeah. ballpoint pens. <laughs> now that a we've got ballpoint one... pens, you've got to be able to regulate what can be called a ballpoint pen. Ballpoint pen. Yeah, a common one that I see. <laughs> you have to regulate how is, big you know, the balls can be on them. You got to regulate how much ink they hold. I, I don't. I, that makes no sense to me. I don't understand why having more stuff would require yeah. a bigger regulatory apparatus. Yeah, and you know, one of the this is even more absurd, and this is one is more generally just sort of like in favor of uh, you know we don't need to care too much about the Constitution is, but it's it makes absolutely no sense to me. The Founding Fathers didn't even know that dinosaurs existed, so why should we care what they had to say? Actually, Thomas Jefferson's the guy who introduced the word mammoth as an adjective in our language. Yeah. It's not a a dinosaur, but they were certainly interested in paleontology. I mean, the actual guys who were involved in separating from, from Great Britain were themselves like the preeminent paleontologists of the day. But he just liked mammoth so doggone much that he used mammoth in his correspondence to refer to size and people picked up on it. I mean, that's setting aside though, their personal interest in, you know, something I think it hasn't been released yet, but something we are working on makes note of the fact that lots of the founding fathers were deeply involved in lots of different kinds of organizations, including scientific societies, universities, et cetera. They had very broad interests, many of them, but anyway, setting that aside, I, I always have to wonder. Washington really liked waterways. Okay. But I have to wonder, why does it matter whether or not someone who designed a political system happened to know about the existence of dinosaurs? I'm not really clear what the connection is, why that would make you better or worse. How could somebody who doesn't know about dinosaurs possibly come up make with, good laws? 
Yeah, it's you know, how could how could a guy who didn't know about dinosaurs possibly come up with a theorem for calculating the hypotenuse no, of a right triangle? No, no, it's it's, it's I, I kind of just repeat as sort of a, a shorthand for that whole attitude is oh well of course dance standard can't work anymore we have refrigerators now yeah uh, as, as yeah. if the existence of modern technology totally negates a principle that was true in the past. Yeah, and it, it, one that again like the Constitution really shouldn't have a lot to do with refrigerators because it didn't really go very far out of its way to grant any particular element of the government power over okay, let, let, standards let's, for machines. Let's just take a second here. Okay, let's... All right, I just want to speak to our audience person to person right now. You guys understand that when our founding fathers drafted our constitution, they knew that our society would change. Yeah. They didn't they expect it to stay static. In the actual debates about in the constitutional convention debates where they are writing the constitution, they make models and extrapolate what the population will be in the next 200 years. And they're yeah. I think within like 15% correct what they ended up yep. being. Uh, they anticipate the idea there will be new states that are introduced. They anticipate the fact that we will be from coast to coast. They, they, are, not a, they are not unaware of the fact that societies change. Or even, you know, technological change. They were, you know, the Industrial Revolution had started by this point. Oh, yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. Like, I was, was un, in full swing. Well, yeah, maybe not was, full swing, but... It was, <laughs> it, it was definitely going to accelerate in, in the 19th century, but in the 18th century, we're already at the beginning of probably the biggest technological boom that ever. Western society had ever seen. Has ever and, seen. Yeah. Like since then, too. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're basically still part of the Industrial Revolution. Yes. We're just, you know, a little further downstream from it. But it had already started. They knew, like, you know, they understood that things were changing at a pretty quick pace. And in fact, that's... I think in some ways, one of the reasons they felt comfortable thinking, you know what, we, you know, we can design a system of government. Look, There's that misperception, this idea that, you know, oh, it's just, this is what modern government looks like, got all these regulations. And I think that shows a certain amount of historical ignorance. And, th you know, this isn't super important to the American form, but I think it bears noting these sorts of like industry regulations were actually a hallmark of the pre-modern world. Like yes. medieval guilds were... That's very, very active political point. players. Or, or like, even if you go back to ancient Egypt, you'll oh, find, yeah, you, know. You, you know why language was really invented? And I know some people say cuneiform, cuneiform, however you want to say it, is older. But you know why yeah. at least hieroglyphs were invented? No, go on. Government record keeping. <laughs> yeah. Govern that they, I mean, you call them hieroglyphs, so you assume they're for the hieratic, the priestly order. But really, our oldest records are on you know bottles of stuff taxation records they would track how high the nile went every year because the nile yeah. inundation was the principal thing that would affect how big the harvest would be the reason they wanted to track how big the harvest would be is so they could set tax rates based on it yeah if that's and not that, an administrative yeah. agency i don't know what is that that, that would yeah, it would require an office of of nile record keeping it would require an office of taxation you know, these yeah. offices would need to coordinate with each other that's the only way to accomplish that you know it's a theme for a very long time, especially because the pre-modern world tended to treat law and rights more in terms of groups that they attach to rather than yes. individuals. Yeah, that that's one of the novel things. Ours is the first to really set in stone or on parchment that concept. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But so you would have, you know, say the Guild of Bakers, and they had a certain amount of political influence because there's some, you know, there's a certain number of them. They've got some money. They, yeah. you know, they can make life harder. Or, or, or easy the lollipop guild in, in Munchkin Town. <laughs> yeah, but so I mean, the we Baker's see how guild, corrupt they were. Yeah, 
and the you know the <laughs> the Baker's Guild. You don't like my can go to, <laughs> Not always. The Baker's Guild can go to the king or whoever's in charge and say, you know what, we want you to support us in you know keeping out people who aren't part of our guild from baking bread. So you might directly say you have to be a member of the guild to bake in we, this town. Yeah, or, or, or even you know we we want to make sure that all of our grain is locally sourced. So we want you to say yep. that any baker that doesn't bake with grain that has your stamp on it cannot register as a banker in this city. Or a bake banker? A baker in baker. this city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, one, and, you know, so there's more direct forms like that. And that, then those, are the, those were the know, more common, I think. Yeah. And then there's certain more indirect ones. So it's like, you know, oh, only doing it this way is approved. And we keep the secrets of how to do it or this there, way. There may only so, be... 12 steel smelting furnaces yeah. in this city. Yeah. So yep. what artificial limitations well, on the number of, of competitors and yeah, you need a definition. Okay. What is a, you know, what is a smelting furnace like? Yeah. So that's, and, well, somebody know. makes a new one that doesn't yeah. use the same technology as the old one. And the response is generally to say that's, that's an illegal steel, steel smelting furnace. The response Whatever. is generally to say you that's know, an illegal apparatus. steel smelting <laughs> furnace. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of mentality goes hand in fist with, you know, monarchy, with sort of more centralized forms of government for a very long time yes. until eventually. All of the ancient tyrannies did it. I mean, we our, our knowledge of yeah. the ancient world tends to refer most often to ancient Rome. Well, ancient Rome yeah. was a lot less bureaucratic than the states that preceded it. Uh, it, it, yep. If you look at ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, even ancient China, they're basically ruled by bureaucrats. I mean, even the modern yep. Chinese language, not the not the simplified one that is supported by the Communist Party, but the traditional Chinese language, highly bureaucratic. And it's really it's not until the sort of you know expansion of the European markets after the Black Death. So that's a whole other topic. But basically, it reaches a point where people are like, you know what? No. We realized all this stuff was sort of stifling our industries and our economy. Around that time period, though, so early modern era, that's when we really actually start to see the first deregulation. And that's actually the newer thing then. It's not coincidental that it happened to go with some of the most prosperous times Western society had ever seen, in my opinion. Yeah, so... So all, all of these bureaucrats really just need to get with the times. I mean, what they're doing is way too third millennium BC. Yeah, no, and so they, they got to get with the times. It's not a logical argument that people make against deregulation to say that it's you know old fashioned. That that's not actually directly relevant. <laughs> but it, I think that has a lot of. But they're wrong about it anyway. Yeah, that has a lot of heft <laughs> for certain people who don't want to feel like they're turning back the clock or whatever. But I think it's important to realize. Yeah, you know. All this sort of ultra granular bureaucracy is in some ways millennia old throwback, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and it's similar too, because, you know, part, part of the ancient Egyptian mythology, sorry, I've been reading about Egypt recently. So I can it's tell. It's on my mind. But, <laughs> but part, part of that mythology was that the Pharaoh was charged with basically upholding the natural order of the cosmos, you know, keeping yeah. the seasons in their natural order, making sure that the Nile would inundate at the right times, all that sort of thing. So my bet is if you'd asked an ancient Egyptian, well, why do you need Pharaoh? It would have told you, well, we need to make sure that the Nile inundation happens at the right time. That's pretty dang important. Yeah. Same way if you ask somebody, why do you need food regulation nowadays? Well, we got to make sure there aren't fingers in sausages. Yeah. <laughs> or gasoline well, it turns out there's cooler. actually other things that might prevent that from happening, totally irrespective of Pharaoh's influence. 
Yeah. And so good transition. I applaud you. Let's talk about what are some of the potential alternatives and in fact, actual alternatives that we used to use to the regulatory state. My favorite one is nothing. <laughs> we right. used well, okay. to do nothing on but a lot of this stuff. And when you say worked fine. When you say nothing, we don't literally mean, you know, because the thing people are afraid of, and I, you know, it, again, I understand why you'd be afraid of someone suddenly deciding, hey, you know, we figured out it's cheaper if we make Kool-Aid with gas instead of Kool-Aid. So we're just going to start selling that, a bunch of people. With gas, not right now. I mean, no, maybe no, a year no. ago. So, fair fair enough. Right now, it's more expensive. It's cheaper to fill your car with champagne than it is with gasoline. That's probably true. But anyway, okay. So I know, I've uh, done turpentine. It. Or turpentine, excuse me. It doesn't work well. Gasoline works better than champagne. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't actually done that. Okay, so let's say turpentine instead of gasoline then. We're gonna make (laughs) we're gonna make Kool-Aid with turpentine, because that's cheaper and we'll make more money because we're an evil corporation, blah blah blah, whatever. You know, whatever people are afraid of happening. Well, I think a lot of people think without regulatory bodies to say, no, there's a law against that, you can't do that, then you have no recourse if someone does feed you turpentine. And that's not the case. We talked about that last week too. Yeah, well, we alluded to this last week, and I, I wanted to go deeper into a couple specific things. You know, obviously there's fraud, and we, you know, we were talking about fraud specifically last week. But I also want to talk about there's torts. also there's, there's also product liability. You know, yeah. If you actually, even nowadays, although we probably have our issues with that, but you don't even actually have to be in privity with the original producer or the seller. Uh, the mere fact that you are the last person in the string of commerce to be able to receive this item is sufficient to make its producer liable to you and if it has defects that result in injuries to you you can receive compensation for that that's a common law rule nothing that has anything to do with the regulatory state yeah and one of the things i think people don't seem to quite grasp is the part that torts play in general in our legal system i think everyone thinks that to stop a bad thing from happening like the only way the, the law can do anything about a bad thing is if it makes it a crime to do it. And okay. Actually, I'm going to talk about Blackstone again here. Uh-huh. So Blackstone, I think rightly, says that the, the civil law, the government law, has to do with two things. It has to do with rights, and it has to do with wrongs. Uh-huh. That's it. Rights yeah. and wrongs. Rights are things that you're that are right for you to do, Yep. and wrongs are things that are wrong, wrong. <laughs> for you to do. I put that yeah. one together myself. So Yeah, so that's what the law is about. <laughs> It's supposed to prohibit wrong, and it's supposed to permit right. And it yeah. works sort of the opposite way in which the Constitution restricts the government. If something isn't mentioned in the law, if it isn't restricted, then it's a right. It's a freedom yeah. of action. It's something that you can do. Wrongs are things that are actually prohibited under the law. And then you break that down. So you look at the wrongs side of it. There's two different kinds of wrongs. There are private wrongs, and there are public wrongs. Public wrongs are things that are wrong to do to society in general, things that are wrong to do within the civil sphere in which you live. That's things that we usually deal with under the criminal code. We've made them criminal. That's why when there's a criminal proceeding against you, it's the state of whatever versus you or United States versus you. That's the reason the case looks like that. Private wrongs are things where society doesn't have a real stake in it, but two folks do. The person who alleges the wrong against the other and the person who is alleged to have committed the wrong. And those cases are usually so-and-so v. so-and-so. That's it. That's what our law... Yep, that, that's it. It's For whatever reason, people get very, very fixated on this public wrongs side of thing yeah. while ignoring the private wrongs entirely. Right. Even though and, we live in a society in which individual rights are prized, 
private wrongs ought to be taken and, in fact, are taken very seriously. They're just dealt with under the civil law rather than the criminal. Yeah. And so to, you know, draw the line between the dots, say there's no regulation that specifically says Kool-Aid company, you can't put turpentine in the drink and sell it to people because that's bad. Now, if they nevertheless do put turpentine I don't, I really don't think it harms society when well, turpentine no. is in Kool-Aid. I think it harms the people that buy the Kool-Aid. Well, and, and, but, you know, and it would. So, say you bought the Kool-Aid and relying on the fact that Kool-Aid has historically been very sugary drink that some people like that I personally don't care for. Um, but, you know, say, it's you not know, turpentine flavored at all. Right. You know, it doesn't taste like turpentine, I can tell you that. And no, historically, when no, I have, not at all, when I have consumed Kool-Aid. <laughs> not even a little bit. I have, you know, not been at least immediately harmed. It may be contributing to diabetes I'll develop later down the line, but, um, it, you know, it didn't and make me... Which could, which could be actionable as well, if, if you <laughs> wouldn't reasonably have expected the diabetes, which yeah. you probably would, but... Right. But so, you know, if relying on my past experience with Kool-Aid, which is that it's a relatively harmless sugary drink, I pick one or up. Or other people's past experience, or, yeah. or what they've put out in their marketing. Right. They have that big guy in the, well, you know, oh yeah. And, and he doesn't say anything about serpentine at all. He doesn't doesn't say anything about industrial solvents yeah like it's nothing about that commercial implies that i am buying something that is in part or in whole industrial solvent yeah but so i buy it at the store i take it home i drink it and ignoring the fact that it doesn't taste right i consume it and then i realize you know that Ooh. didn't taste right and i become violently ill i don't think you'd realize that for long i think you no. <laughs> but <laughs> somehow i managed to choke down all of it instead of just immediately spitting it out and i become violently ill because of this and i and go to the survive. doctor yeah. And, you know, it turns out, oh, you know, you consume turpentine and it's going to, you know, cost you all this money in medical bills, et cetera, et cetera. Even without a regulation, there is recourse for me to have that wrong dealt with. I think you probably get punitive damages on that one, too. Yeah. I don't think, you know, you could get your medical bills covered. You could get your lost time at work covered. I think you'd also get, you know, just a slap on the wrist from the court saying, you guys shouldn't have put turpentine in the Kool-Aid. No, and punitive damages are often, you know, I think there's a limit in California. I'm going to get it wrong, but it's, 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 it can't be however many times in excess of whatever the actual damages are. But you yeah. know, all that to say, punitive damages are often much more than the actual damages. Right. And so if, the, if Kool-Aid decides to make a practice of selling this turpentine drink, then they're probably going to end with a lot of people bringing action against them. They're going to end up yeah, owing even a class a lot. action, perhaps. Yeah, and that can be extremely cost prohibitive for them. Whatever they hoped to accomplish or save, I don't know. I don't know if turpentine is even cheaper to produce than sugar water. It probably isn't. <laughs> um, but imagine that it were, and they were hoping to make more money this way. If they get action brought against them consistently, which they would, it's not going to work for them. It's going to go away. The, the is the issue you get are cases like with the Ford Pinto. I don't yeah. know if you know that whole oh, I thing. Do. Yeah. Where, where where Ford had made a cost-benefit analysis saying that the amount in lawsuits that the, the explosion of these cars was going to cost yeah. uh, was less than the cost of fixing whatever the problem was. Right. But that problem does not go away when you regulate it. In fact, I'd say that problem is a little bit worse when you regulate it because you don't just have that kind of cost-benefit calculus some of the time. You have it every time. Right. Because it's every time somebody that runs a company sees, hey, we can meet this regulatory minimum, even though we know for a fact it is not safe for our product. Yeah. They have every incentive to make that decision because well, then they're immune, well, not a, they're functionally immune from lawsuit on that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, even even aside from the, you know, genuinely meeting the minimum, if someone wants to be really nefarious, really malicious and just, you know, 
engage in deceptive practices, they can still do that with regulations. VW had a huge thing a few years back, you know, Volkswagen, which is a massive company. I'm sure they spent a lot of resources on figuring out if cheating the emission standards which is what they did. You know, they, they were required to have certain fuel efficiency basically for their cars and they faked results. I guarantee you they considered the cost benefit of, oh, what if we get caught for this? What are the regulatory right. penalties we would face? And they still determined that it was worth doing it. That problem doesn't go away either. And see, I, I just know, I just know we're going to have people who listen to this and say, well, the solution then is higher regulatory penalties. We're not hard enough on these corporations. <laughs> and you no, know, you have missed the point. Yeah. We can't possibly know what people are going to produce in the future and how much it's going to cost them to do it. People are very creative. Right. People will find lots of ways to do things so they can make money. Yeah. That's why if you have a judicially enforced standard where somebody can seek punitive damages and then a lawyer who is very familiar with the case will argue, here's the amount of punitive damages that I think will discourage this behavior in the future. See, like a real famous case that was kind of derided at the time. The McDonald's hot coffee The, the McDonald's coffee, yep. yeah, where the woman spilled hot coffee on her lap and it gave her third-degree burns. She had to get reconstructive surgery, all kinds of stuff. Much hotter yep. than coffee is reasonable to be. But she was given millions and millions of dollars for this. And everybody said, that's absurd. She shouldn't yep. have been given that. reason she was given that is a lawyer argued and a judge imposed punitive damages equivalent to one day's coffee sales from McDonald's coffee. Yeah. That well, was what and- they reasoned was sufficient to discourage doing this. She got the full value of one day's sales of coffee at McDonald's. Yeah. And, and I, I want to clarify, I'd say it's, too. it's probably low. I'm not sure yeah. one day really would discourage it. No, and I, I want to clarify because I think a lot of people, you know, in a bit of an irony because normally people are very hard on corporations just out of principle, but this was one of the few times where I feel like people were like, oh, you know, poor McDonald's, so what? This dumb woman spilled coffee on herself and now they're at fault. They had a policy, as it was discovered, of maintaining the coffee at a dangerous level of heat so that people wouldn't be able to tell as easily when it had gone stale when they sold it to them. So you could basically keep the same batch of coffee around for longer by keeping it at a dangerously high temperature. And that's yeah, so it was intentional. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why she got severe burns is because they were deliberately keeping the coffee yeah. too hot. Yeah, pun- punitive damages are hard to get. Just to be clear, yeah. uh, it, it's and with good it's, reason because it's a punishment. You know, punitive. Yeah. It's a punishment. The standards for meeting that are higher than just general civil liability. It's closer to like a crime. So you've yeah. got to be able to show, if not intentionality, then malice. Malice is has a legal meaning, you know, it's intent or with reckless disregard to the consequences. Yeah. Um, usually those, but you, you need circumstances that show something really bad was going on. Yeah, this wasn't, this wasn't just an honest mistake of some kind, basically. Please don't call me and ask, here's my case. I can get punitive <laughs> damages, right? It's like, well, even though I had no monetary harm here, I can get punitive damages, right? Probably not is the yeah. answer. We, I will seek punitive damages in lots of cases. Never, ever count on getting them. Odds are yeah. against it, even if you get a really, really good lawyer who makes the best possible case. Yeah. You should you should never stake your entire case on getting that. It's no. not legal advice, but... <laughs> yeah, again, as we've said before, don't take any legal advice from a podcast. It's just a bad move in general. Don't care who's on the podcast. Don't do it. Yeah. that's a, If you go through Blackstone's canons of, of interpretation, a guy on a podcast told me... <laughs> Probably. doesn't even make the list. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, I don't think that would appear, actually. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, 
The legal minds behind our constitution may have anticipated societal change. I'm pretty sure they didn't specifically anticipate the podcast as a medium. So I don't think they would have included it in their judicial philosophy if they had, David. Right, that's 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 valid. That's a fair point. All right. We'll go now into our final segment. And those of you who have listened to previous episodes know we've tried a different name for this segment every time. That tradition will continue. But this time, I did not come up with the name where, you know, we crowdsourced some things and someone else at the Institute... Maybe the, maybe it'll be better this time then. <laughs> someone else at the Institute... <laughs> well, actually, to be fair, they didn't say this exact thing. They said something very much like this, and I tweaked it a little bit to, to bring it more to where I wanted it. But this time uh-huh. around, we're calling it Jalapenos. You know, like jal- Jalapenos, but me? with law instead, because these are spicy takes about law from who, the Who recommended that? Who recommended that? <laughs> uh, this was based on a I suggestion. Might, I might have to have it. <laughs> based on a suggestion from Eric, although I think the original sort of prompt to go, I'm pretty sure that Kristen said something about a, a, a fairly similar idea. So anyway, blame them, uh, well. not me. I I'm, <laughs> I am not weighing in on my I'm still going to blame you. still going to blame you, David. <laughs> anyway, this is where we're going to take a look at some of the more Interesting hot takes. Jalapenos. Jalapenos. The last three have been food related. It's again, like in terms of, you know, if we're sticking with that hot takes motif, most of the time the people are talking about fur- heat. What about the blast furnace? Call it the, or. Well, but that's, you know, I don't know. That's, that's somehow less fun. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, well. <laughs> At some point, I'm <laughs> or, probably or just like, going to um, give up on coming up with a catchy name and we're just going to call it The smelting takes. plant or. Yeah, the, uh, the crucible. Actually, that's a pretty good the one. Cruci- yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Especially, that's already a, a legally related play by yeah. a communist. Arthur Miller. That's right. Anyway, so now in response not to an, your... Not an accurate play at all, by the way. Yeah, no, there, there, are, there are a number of historical inaccuracies about that play, but uh, Arthur Miller. Fun fact, he was briefly married to Marilyn Monroe. Anyway, last week you complained a lot about them all being from Twitter. So this time I think none of the ones I've selected are from Twitter. Good. We'll see Perfect. how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, you know, they, they, they may not be as good as the problem. Nothing wrong with we'll, Twitter. We'll find I just, out. We we'll find a out. variety here. Yeah. Well, anyway. So let me uh, let me pull up the first one here. I don't even remember what most of these are. So I'll be relearning them along with you. They'll be lukewarm takes from David. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so I, I censored so, a where, curse where word here. From? That's what that. This, I want to say, was something that I clipped off of Reddit. Okay. I'm pretty sure. So here's I think several says, of these might be Reddit. I went back several times because Paramount Plus kept messing with the Ble- screenshot. Bleeping. Yeah. yeah, bleeping with the screenshot. So I heard it about six times. I just went back again and listened three more times, and he is saying calm. Also, if they can't properly capture, caption their own content, they're going to get sued by for ADA noncompliance very soon. It has been becoming a big issue recently. So this person, I don't know what show they were trying to watch. This relates to, to what we've been saying about the administrative state. Yeah. Well, he got the wrong <laughs> alphabet agency, for one. That's failure to properly caption this. I, I'm, you know, I'm, sure you could, I'm sure you could find some lawyer who, for a big enough retainer, would be willing to take the case that that's ADA discrimination. Don't pay that person, that retainer. That person's lying to you if they tell you you can get a recovery. <laughs> uh, but, but in general, I, I don't think the ADA would cover that. Really, that kind of thing is regulated by the FCC. And that's the Federal yeah. Communications Commission. Yeah, and Different ADA, alphabet agency. For, for the record, ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. 
But yeah. yeah, so this person was watching some TV show on a streaming platform. Also, you know the hilarious thing here saying. is, so the ADA has to do with equal access to handicapped people yeah. of the same thing. Presumably, they're watching this content and can't hear what the person says, so they look yeah. up the closed captions, and they're saying that also <laughs> might be wrong. If you can't hear yeah. it either, and the closed that's captions equal. are wrong, that's equal access. Yeah, that's it's just equally bad for everybody. <laughs> right. So that's just a very like the like, just, like the that's Soviet kind of Union. a facially, you know, like like a a, a forehead slapper because it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that was a pretty stupid thing for me to say. And I bet if they yeah. consider it for a few more seconds, I don't think this person is probably. I think they're probably sharp enough to realize that mistake. Who knows? But anyway, so I guess I think we got your your take there in the course of you describing it, but. I'm going to go out on the limb here and say you don't think that failure to properly close caption a TV show is a violation of the ADA? It's, I, yeah, like I said, you could probably find a lawyer who would bring that case. I wouldn't recommend it. But it wouldn't, it. It wouldn't be you under most circumstances? Not, no, I would not. For, you know, you want to pay me $200,000. I'm, I'm kidding. I would, I, would not, I would not take that case for any <laughs> amount of money because I have a fiduciary duty to my clients not to waste their money. And I yeah. would not take that case. Yeah. All right. So... <laughs> That's number one. Now, I uh, I cut this one down pretty heavily. This one, I think this is actually just like someone's group text that they ended up posting a screenshot of somewhere on social media. I don't even remember what site I got this from. But I'm only going to show you the last message from the screenshot. Suffice it to say, what came before was this guy describing criminal behavior. Okay. People, you know, he was describing something he was planning on doing and people were like, oh, you can't do that. That's a crime. And then yeah. he says this. You got to go to the Reddit, the subreddit legal advice, because there's some horrendous stuff in there. But okay, so this is a text message. It says, I've done time for it once. I can't be charged for it again. Double jeopardy. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's very funny. Oh, that's very funny. Okay, that's not how double jeopardy works. Uh, double jeopardy means that you can't be tried quite. Try, I'm sorry. Double jeopardy means that you can't be tried twice for the same offense. That doesn't mean right. an offense rising under the same statutory code or, or <laughs> yeah. it means the same offense. Yeah. So it's, you know, if I, it's like, okay, I murdered this guy. Right. And I went and I did my time. I did my 20 years or whatever. And I came out now they can never get me for murder again. <laughs> so I'm just going to go wild. <laughs> That's what this guy seems Double to jeopardy. Now, I've, already, I've already faced a trial for murder and I'm, it's my legal right not to have to do it again. Yeah. And one of the things I, I could have included, decided not to in the end, was this devolved into a long conversation on what, again, whatever the platform was, may have been Reddit, may have been Facebook, I don't remember, but about the plot of the movie Double Jeopardy, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that I'm, one. I've never even heard of that movie. I know it's a segment okay. in the TV show Jeopardy, but well, it just means all enough, your but... points are worth double or whatever. Yeah. The film Double Jeopardy is about this woman whose husband fakes his own death and frames her for his murder. And then, you know, she gets convicted or, you know, or beats it. I forget what she, but that first trial resolves. Mm -hmm. And then she finds the husband still alive and in revenge kills him on the theory that because she already faced the trial for his murder, she can't face it again. I don't, that would not work. Yeah. People, people on this platform, whatever it was in response to this, this thing I just showed you started arguing about this movie about whether or not that was legally accurate. Yeah. And a lot of people were insistent that it was. That's uh, the double jeopardy uh, requirement basically applies when it's not even necessarily the same statutory section. It's even 
if somebody's charged with a different crime where the elements are the same, uh, being tried yeah. under the same jurisdiction, and and you know facts used to satisfy one element are the same between the different crimes, it's also going to run afoul of double jeopardy. It really has much more to do with the actual transaction that's at issue than it does with code sections. That's not really yeah what that's about. Yeah, but anyway, but to to put it simply. If you were, you know, in in this situation, if you were accused of killing someone who had in fact faked his own death, you don't then get just like a free ticket to kill that guy later. No, <laughs> um, no, that's because the if you then kill him later, that's not the same crime no. that you faced a trial for earlier. Right. It's a different crime because the facts are different. In fact, you it's were indeed properly acquitted that the yeah. time when you. <laughs> it's like that was a proper ruling in that case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like if you're charged with stealing the Cullinan diamond when you didn't, in fact, steal the Cullinan diamond and then you're acquitted from doing that, you can't then go and steal the Cullinan diamond. Yeah. I, mean, that, I would, I'd <laughs> hope that'd be really obvious. I think in the movie she may have been convicted and maybe they present that as like the key difference is that she'd already done time for killing this guy. Well, or, I, I mean, don't know. That, that Something. Yeah, I don't know. That, that may be true. The prosecutor would probably bring a motion to have the previous ruling reversed. Yeah, you'd think. <laughs> I, I don't know how it would work in that instance. I, that's a good question. Anyway, all right. So let's move on to the next one. And this one, I think I do remember the circumstances. I think this was on one of the law-related subreddits. And someone said, you know, what's the craziest thing that you've had a client ask you for? Or something, you know, weirdest law story, basically, um, I believe, from practicing attorneys. Okay, so trying to get out of paying his bill at a restaurant because he ordered a single beer, which altered his mental capacity, thereby negating his capacity to enter into a binding contract when presented with his credit card receipt for signature. Now the contract was created when he ordered the beer. Yep. You don't even get you don't even get to any of the capacity arguments. The contract was created when he ordered the beer. <laughs> it was just memorialized right. when they sent him the receipt. Yeah. So nice, nice, clean and simple one. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But Con I thought, contracts, you know, points so, for so inventing. You know, there's, there's elements of a contract. It's got to have certain indefinite terms. It's got to have a, an offer. It's got to have acceptance. It's got to have reliance. I'm sorry, not reliance. It's got to yep. have consideration. Um, or yep. if not consideration, then it has to have reliance. Uh, all of those factors are present when he ordered the beer and the beer was brought to the table. So you don't, you don't need the writing in place for the contract to exist. Yeah. But I do, I do applaud the inventiveness here, though. I, I think this guy... You know, he had a plan. He took a swing at it. You know, I, I would accept that I've gotten too many client <laughs> consultations where somebody did something kind of dumb as a result of a basic misunderstanding of the law, thinking they were being clever and yep. got in a lot of trouble. It's, if I, I have, you know, let me make this clear. We're, we're a very, at Lexrex Institute, we pride ourselves on being creative. Uh, we are always looking for sort of clever ways to approach issues. So I, I'm not at all opposed to people coming up with clever ideas to get around stuff. Sure, go ahead. Come to us with those. Consult us beforehand. <laughs> yeah. Not afterward. And, you know, I think it's probably no guarantee that you don't have a, a genuinely new creative solution to something. But when it comes to something like purchasing a beer, people have been doing that for literally thousands of years. And there's been you know, certainly at least centuries of legal reflection on things like that. Contract law probably, is about the most settled area of yeah, law. It's changed it, it's very, probably, very little in the past couple thousand years. It's probably unlikely you've discovered the, you know, the trick 
to get unlimited free beer. But not to, I'm not even going to get into the analysis of whether or not he could form the contract after drinking the beer. Let's not even go down that <laughs> rabbit hole. But th- th- right. even, he's not even strong on that. All right. Anyway, so that's that one. And that brings us to our final one. I, I think this is from that same subreddit, same same thread. People talking about interesting things they saw in their law careers. A woman was going to take a course to obtain career skills. Her instructor died and she did not take the course. Then she was hurt in a roller skating accident and later tried to claim loss of income for the job she would have had if she had taken the course and successfully gotten the job. So like a, pretty a loss of potential earnings That's claim. pretty. You, you know, you can get expectancy damages on things. They can't be entirely speculative. <laughs> or or, or they, they can't contain nested conditionals where, yeah. you know, if it's this like, had happened you know, and this had happened and this had happened, well, then I would have had the money, so you've cheated me out of it. Yeah. I, like, I think you know, the test is reasonably certain to occur. And yeah. if, if you've got to meet a series of conditionals before something will be true, not reasonably certain. In fact, this one was impossible to be true because her instructor had died. So just the opposite of being reasonably certain, it was 100% uncertain. Yeah, so it, it put me in my, you know, a few years ago. Was it a few now? I, I don't know. Time has basically become one undifferentiated mass to me since all this COVID stuff started. That's not great. Um, <laughs> but a little bit, but, oh, no, okay. So it must have been late in 2019 because it was pretty shortly before all the lockdowns started going on. But... I was at a red light, stopped in my car, and this guy rear-ended me, you know, totaled my car in the end. He was driving a pickup truck. I was driving a small sedan. And, you know, I was basically okay. My neck was a little stiff for a couple days. But this just strikes me as, like, you know, what if I had decided to go after that guy for, you know, loss of income because I'm really convinced that if I hadn't hurt my neck that day, I was going to, you know, really start a, an absolute world-class athletic training program, become <laughs> a professional basketball player, yeah. and make $30 million a year. Yeah. And I'm going to sue him for that loss of $30 million. Uh, no. Um, if you were already doing that, uh, and you lost the money because your neck hurt for a few uh, days. That's then, how they get you. <laughs> yeah. Now, now maybe, maybe what if the person was driving to a job interview and they got rear-ended and because of that they missed the job interview mm. I, you know, e- even there you weren't reasonably certain to get the job even if you there's right. a very high likelihood that you would get it it's <laughs> again we call it expectancy damages for a reason so we have consequential damage yeah. that's a, as a direct consequence of what the person did we've got expectancy damages as well which is things that you would expect uh you know, it's neither a direct consequence nor is it something that was an expectation. So you would not be able to be compensated for that. All right. Well, I think we have successfully wrapped up all of our. And how I'm, law again, I'm, I'm not saying you won't find a lawyer who will tell you that he can get this in court. <laughs> I mean, the things that some lawyers will promise their clients. Yeah. Are, Did you know you have rights? The Constitution says you do. And so do I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to hire Saul Goodman. Maybe no. you do. I haven't watched the show. Maybe he's a good lawyer, but uh, his ads don't speak not that really. Him. No, he's he's not a very good lawyer. Right, so that was How Law Peños. At least this week it was. Yeah, and that's what that was. That's gonna that's gonna wrap it up for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Lex Rex Institute podcast, and uh, we hope to have you come back. All right. See you next week. <laughs>